With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Once, upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, and nothing more. Ah, distinctly, I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here for evermore and the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, this it is, and nothing more. Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer sir said i or madam truly your forgiveness i implore but the fact is i was napping and so gently you came rapping so faintly you came tapping tapping at my chamber door that i scarce was sure i heard you here i opened wide the door darkness there and nothing more deep into that darkness peering long i stood there wondering fearing doubting dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before but the silence was unbroken and the darkness gave no token and the only word there spoken was the whispered word lenore this i whispered and an echo murmured back the word lenore merely this and nothing more back into the chamber turning all my soul within me burning soon i heard again a tapping somewhat louder than before surely said i surely that is something at my window lattice let me see then what thereat is and this mystery explore let my heart be still a moment and this mystery explore tis the wind and nothing more open here i flung the shutter when with many a flirt and flutter in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore not the least obeisance made he not an instant stopped or stayed he but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door perched upon a bust of pallas just above my chamber door perched and sat and nothing more 
then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore though thy crest be shorn and shaven thou i said art sure no craven ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore quoth the raven nevermore have you heard the story of and written on the wall and everyone blood. has the different stories of oh this happened to my brother this is telling brother. you stories of the old country. there was this girl it was back when we were little kids to find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in american lore. a story behind the story because it's just a story hello and welcome to the just a story podcast i'm jake and i'm sam and we're here to tell you a story. Each week, most weeks, most of the weeks, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. I want to welcome all of you back. We missed you. We did. We were snowed in with our children. No! So what happens in Louisiana is if a single snowflake hits the ground, we go into a state of emergency. This is barely an exaggeration. Like, really. Like, if the forecast says maybe a 10% chance of snow, everyone freaks out. So for the entire week, we were locked in our house with the children. Because snow. It's also like 70 degrees today. Yeah. So, sorry about that, guys. But I'm back. Jacob's back. Me too. He's here. I let him join me. So I have a weekly affirmation for you. And it's whenever you feel like things are just really piling up on you and you're like, is this real life? Is this just fantasy? I feel like I'm caught in a landslide with no escape from reality. And you open your eyes and you look up to the skies. Just remember that I love you. And you know what else? What? We're going to talk about a po' boy this week. No. Worst joke ever. That was the best joke ever. You're so wrong. <laughs> I know where you're going with that. <laughs> He's just a po' boy. Nobody loves him. Well, before we get there, we do want to thank all of you for coming back. Thanks to everyone that's left ratings and reviews on iTunes, including Gwynelise, Strike, and One Less Do. Shiny, happy thank yous. And we do want to encourage all of you to reach out to us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Just a Story Pod. You can also check out our website, justastorypod.com, to find all sorts of fun information about the episodes, and also find a link to our Patreon page. Patreon is a place where you can go to become a sustaining members like you, and there we have lots of fun extras. We post little mini-sodes, mini-pods, things. Which this month, we will have an extra story related to this episode. Ta-da! And we also send out stickers and thank yous and such as that. So if you'd like to support the show, you can go there. Also on our website, you can find links to our merch shop. And there you can find all sorts of fun t-shirts and other fun things, including... One for this episode! Oh, and you know you want it. You know you do. I've already ordered mine. <laughs> Sam does Poe. And if you're looking for one more way to reach out to us, if you too are snowed in and have nothing to do this week, and you need to talk to a grown-up, or just talk to someone who's not your child, you can call us at 512-222-3375. There you will reach our voicemail and you can recount how bad your week's been. I'm really feeling that one right now. Or you can tell us a story or a joke or, you know, that thing your grandmother used to say that never made any sense to you and see if there's, it has some folk roots or whatever. Or find out it's hidden racist connotations, whatever. Yeah, that's also an option if you don't. So Sam, 
Back to the po' boy at hand. You know, it's easy come, easy go. And no, I will not let it go. Let it go. Let it go. So today, as we talk about the man, the myth, the legend, Edgar Allan Poe, we are going to start with one of his later works and one of his most famous works, the poem The Raven. I've never heard of it. Bullshit. (laughs) So The Raven was published in January of 1845 in New York's Evening Mirror. So this was four years before Poe had died and 15 years since he had last published a full volume of poetry. The Raven is really what sent Poe into the stratosphere of literary fame. Of course, he'd had popularity before, but this is really what put him in the canon. Like, he would have been like an indie band you were cool for knowing about before. Much more of like an H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. Like, if you're not in the bandwagon... You're not reading it. But now, he was a full-fledged, honest-to-God rock star. Again, just... For example, of what his fame was like at the time, many magazines had declined to publish The Raven, including Graham's Magazine, until it had gotten fame in more minor magazines. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote Poe from England and told him that The Raven had created a sensation and, quote, a fit horror in her country. (laughs) And Charles Baudelaire recognized Poe's innovative theories on art and literature, and he is who translated Poe into French for French consumption. Henry James said that of Baudelaire and Poe, Poe was the greater lunatic, but he was also the greater genius. Probably true. (laughs) Henry James always has two cents for us, by the way. And I probably misquoted that a little, but you get the gist. So he was able to take this popularity from this poem, which he received between $9 and $15 for... And started lecturing and started doing readings and they would have, you know, dimly lit rooms where people would gather to hear him read The Raven and other works. So one listener at the time speaking about his lecture said he would turn down the lamps until the room was almost dark. Then standing in the middle of the apartment, he would recite these wonderful lines in the most melodious of voices. So marvelous was his power as a reader that the auditors would be afraid to draw breath, lest the enchanted spell be broken. It's fun reading all this writing about Poe, because sometimes it seems like people are trying to copy his writing. Right. And just watch out for that as we're <laughs> reading today, and you'll see. So one can actually find a handwritten copy of The Raven in the Philadelphia Free Library Rare Books Department. It covers two sheets front and back, and was written at the request of a fan who lived in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. Now, down the hall from this, one can see the actual raven. No. Kinda. I call balderdash on that. When a glass case, taxidermied and preserved, is Grip the Raven. Grip the Raven? Yes, he was a pet of Charles Dickens. Shut up. (laughs) He died in 1841, the raven, and was mounted by Dickens' friend. Dickens wrote an amusing tongue-in-cheek account of Grip's death in a letter to his friend. He said, On the clock striking twelve, he appeared slightly agitated, but he soon recovered, walked twice or thrice along the coach house, stopped to bark, staggered, exclaimed, Holla, old girl! (laughs) His favorite expression, and died. He behaved throughout with a decent fortitude, equanimity, and self-possession, which cannot be too much admired. The children seem rather glad of it. Did he die? <laughs> yes, he bit their ankles, but that was play. 
Now, Dickens used, along with another of his pet ravens... Grip. He used Grip. Grip and his others. ...as models for the talking ravens in his book, Barnaby Rudge. Ah, yes. That, I've not read that book. <laughs> Me neither. I will be honest with you. On January 28th of 1841, Dickens wrote to his friend, George Cattermall, My notion is to have Barnaby always in company with a pet raven, who is immeasurably more knowing than himself. To this end, I have been studying my bird and think I can make a very queer character of him. And Poe was like, ditto, dude. <laughs> Kind of. He he admired the story, and he actually reviewed the book in Graham's Magazine in Philadelphia in 1842, writing that the raven's croaking might have been prophetically heard in the course of the drama. Huh. How about that? Saw that ruminating around for a couple of years, and then quoth the raven, right? But yes, but Poe actually met Charles Dickens... And his wife, when they took a six-month trip to the U.S. in 1842. Story goes that he brought his ravens along with him. Well, you know why Dickens agreed to meet with him. Why is that? Because when Poe wrote him this letter that was like, Hey, I'm a big fan of your work. We should meet while you're in the U.S. He mentioned that he'd worked out kind of the solution to Barnaby Rudge before it was published. Ah. And Dickens was very impressed with his... Powers of deduction. I think he also liked all of his positive reviews. Well, since (laughs) Poe gave about three of those ever, I'm sure he did. He was quite a snarky reviewer. And so whenever they finally met, Poe was really excited when he discovered that the raven in Barnaby Rudge was based on Dickens' actual raven. So a few years later, the raven was published with its prophet, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil. Or... You know, Grip, who said, hello, girl. Hello, girl. So, you know, some people did notice, including in 1948, the poet James Russell Lowell wrote, Here comes Poe with his raven, like Barnaby Rudge. Three-fifths of him genius, two-fifths sheer fudge. (laughs) That poem actually attacked a lot of authors. (laughs) Wow. So while Dickens did promise to try to help Poe find a publisher overseas he never was very successful in that right but whenever he returned to the united states in 1868 he did pay a call on poe's poverty-stricken mother-in-law muddy maria clem and gave her a substantial amount of money to help out and fun fact one of the tower ravens is named grip that is a fun fact so when you think of edgar Allan poe What do you think of? Tortured artist. Right. And to me, he's almost cartoonish. Oh, definitely. And like very Tim Burton claymation cartoonish. Oh, yeah. I could definitely see that. It doesn't hurt that Vincent Price played all of his characters in every like 60s adaptation. I can think of three off the top of my head. Which ones? Pit and the Pendulum. Uh Uh-huh. House of Usher. Uh Uh-huh. Mask of the Red Death. That's enough. That's all I can... And I know there's probably more. (laughs) But he's definitely pitiful and downtrodden and somber, somber and like as dark as his subject matter, certainly. Yes, his like works came from his dark black heart. I think there is like definitely a hot topic version of Edgar Allan Poe that we are all very indoctrinated to to take as fact. You know, from a very early age, from the first time you read The Raven in what, like, eighth grade? I mean, my dad handed me a giant book of Poe works earlier than that. Well, me too, but they bring him out at Halloween. 
Definitely. And he's scary and creepy. After you finish reading Alvin Schwartz, you might graduate to Poe, you know, when you're yes. looking for your next scary story. But I think that um, we miss a lot of his character when we buy into that surface level reduction. You know, like maybe those are some of the more essential elements of him, but there's a lot more to him. And you may think that our modern day idea of Poe is just that, a modern day creation. Oh, no, no. Oh, no. It started literally the day he died. (laughs) And maybe before. Uh, A little bit. So let us start at the end. An obituary published in the New York Daily Tribune titled Death of Edgar A. Poe. Edgar Allan Poe is dead. He died in Baltimore the day before yesterday. This announcement will startle many, but few will be grieved by it. First of all, that is some serious shade. Just a little bit. Second of all, very Dickensian to start our our episode this way. To begin with, Poe was dead. (laughs) It was the best of times. Jacob Marley and Poe were dead. What? (laughs) The regrets for his death will be suggested principally by the consideration that in him, literary art has lost one of its most brilliant, but erratic stars. Shade. Mr. Allen refused to pay some of his debts of honor, and he hastily quitted the country on a quixotic expedition to join the Greeks, then struggling for liberty. He did not reach his original destination, however, but made his way to St. Petersburg in Russia Mm. when he became involved in difficulties from which he was extricated. But in 1831, the proprietor of a weekly gazette in Baltimore offered two premiums, one for the best story in prose and the other for best poem. So, of course, Poe goes and enters into it. But this writer says that it was not much of a contest because... It was unanimously decided that the prizes should be paid to the first of the geniuses who had written legibly. Oh my god. Not another manuscript was unfolded, and immediately the confidential envelope was opened, and a successful competitor was found to bear the scarcely known name of Poe. I feel like drag queens would be like, honey, that is too much. (laughs) Like, that is too Uh. much shade. He was at all times a dreamer, dwelling in ideal realms in heaven or hell peopled with creatures and the accidents of his brain. He walked the streets in madness or melancholy, with lips moving in indistinct curses, or with eyes upturned in passionate prayers. Never for himself, for he felt, or professed he felt, that he was already damned. We must omit any particular criticism of Poe's work. As a writer of tales, it will be admitted generally that he was scarcely surpassed in ingenuity of construction or effective painting. As a critic, he was more remarkable as a desecrator of sentences than as a commentator upon ideas. He was little better than a carping grammarian. Oh! Called him a grammar Nazi. We need those, okay? We need people like that. First of all. Okay. Who wrote this? Well, it was signed Ludwig. Ludwig? Yes. Villain. Grammar Nazi. G- no, he's not. He's a he's a commentator on ideas, not a desecrator of sentences. Well, he sure thought he was, because this was actually written by a man named Rufus Wilmot Griswold. Okay, that is still a villain name. Oh, he is. He is. So he wrote this libelous obituary of Poe, portraying Poe as a mad, drunken, womanizing, opium addict 
who based his darkest tales on personal experience. But his dislike of Poe was well known, and he was quickly exposed. He wrote to Miss Sarah Helen Whitman saying, I wrote, as you suppose, the notice of Poe in the Tribune, but very hastily. I was not his friend, nor was he mine. Yet I spent an afternoon of my life. He was trolling Poe. They were the ultimate frenemies. But seriously, he was a troll. He was like a grief troll in a newspaper in like the 1840s. Oh, but this goes far beyond that because they were they were frenemies. They were often calling on each other for favors, but they were also big literary rivals. Mm. Each saw themselves as a literary conscience and guide for America. So Griswold was putting together the Poets and Poetry of America. A collection, very creatively titled. And I assume that he believed that he was going to be the first to carve out like a literary canon for this burgeoning nation. Yes, yes, of course. But in Poe's mind, he did a terrible job. Shocking. And Poe had no problem telling everyone that he did. Poe was incredibly opinionated. He was passive aggressive as fuck. And he was super confident of his opinions. Like, not only did he have them and say them all the time, there was never a moment in his mind where he was like, I could be wrong about that. (laughs) So other than just writing reviews heavy and shade himself, Poe also went on a lecture tour about, like, kind of American poetry and was not very flattering to Mr. Griswold. I will say here that it is one thing to write a bad review of someone's work. It is another thing to write a bad review of someone. Just food for thought. Like, he wrote a bad review of Poe when he died. Oh, right. Well, Poe was not exactly mincing words about Griswold in their life either. (laughs) Well, so they were also, in addition to being literary rivals, sir. What? They were romantic rivals. (gasps) Oh, no. (gasps) They both vied for the the affections of one Fanny Osgood. Oh, well, who wouldn't? I I know, right? And... When she and Poe had kind of had this weird sort of platonic love affair that went on for years, but she ended up with Griswold, and it just really got Poe's goat. When Fanny and Griswold paired off, Poe was poed off. So by the way, believe it or not, there is a drunk history about their rivalry. It's pretty fantastic. And you should go watch it. And moderately educational. Yes, pause. It's semi-right. So not only did Poe's bitter rival write this libelous obituary, he also gained the rights to Poe's work from Maria Clem. Oh, Maria. That is his mother-in-law. But don't worry. He does include a brief preface pronouncing the edition as a charitable act to benefit Miss Clem. Oh, that's very out of character and kind. Well, what he actually did was he gave her six sets of the two volumes to sell at whatever she could get. That makes more sense. (laughs) If she'd held on to it for 200 years, she would have made bank. Right? (laughs) Jeez, Maria. But this first posthumous collection, the works of the late Edgar Allan Poe, pretty much became the basis for future collections of his prose and poetry. Was it a decent representation, would you say? Oh, yeah. It definitely was. It wasn't like he picked all the worst things just to make it look bad. Because he was profiting from it. He made money from it. He was fine picking the best. Now, he also wrote a memoir of the author, an article that he later included in his collection of Poe's work. And it was the only biography of Poe. 
for 20 years. Oh, shit. <laughs> and I bet it was every bit as glowing as that first obituary. Oh, he basically expands upon that. I mean, there was no no lie to outlandish. Hmm. It's like he enjoyed the little lies in his first article and decided to go all in. <laughs> it's like no one called me out on that. So not only... Does Griswold help actually secure his literary legacy by publishing this? He also helps create the mad, somber, genius writer image that we've all come to know and love. But, who was Poe? I have to say, there is something to that image that resonates true. Like, it's definitely, it's a caricature, you know, like with the most readily identifiable features Greatly exaggerated. Right. It is not a complete fabrication in the least. Because even at the time that Poe was publishing and working in literary circles, he stood out. Like, I think of him as like a Johnny Depp in a sea of Brad Pitt's, if you will. You know, like, he did definitely have his own vibe, and people noticed it at the time. Great. Now you have inspired someone to cast Johnny Depp in an Edgar Allan Poe movie. God damn it. And it's all your fault. No, it's not. (laughs) Don't do it. He's going to do a weird British accent and Poe is American. And so is he. It's really weird. But let's let's get down to the bones of the thing and let's let's look at what we actually know about Edgar Allan Poe. So he was born in Boston, Massachusetts on January 19th of 1809. Both of his parents were actors because... Of course they were. Of course they were. But they both died before he turned three because... This is a Disney movie. Of course they did. We're going with a theme here. <laughs> it's a call and response. Dickens wrote it. <laughs> so his father, David Poe, had been working his way through law school when he spotted this beautiful young actress named Eliza Arnold. And being as much of a romantic as his son would one day be, he decided to just abandon his legal studies and become an actor himself. The life of a thespian or nothing. So over time, he did become Eliza's manager and they married. And she was 19, but she was already a widow and a 10-year veteran of the stage, which is pretty impressive. And critics made note that she was much better on stage than David was, which... I'm sure you love that. Mm -hmm. Now, they married in 1806 and had three children, Henry, who was born in 1807, Edgar, and then a daughter named Rosalie. And by this time, David had begun to resent Eliza's success, and she had become the primary breadwinner in the family. Oh, no. Yeah. So she worked until the week that Edgar was born and was back on stage two weeks later. All right, Mama. I know. Get it. Tough woman. But David left the family in July of 1811. And according to family accounts, he died five months later. I've seen some stories that he died in a tavern fire. Dickens read those stories. Right. Eliza then began to worsen. She'd already been showing signs of suffering with TB, and she died in Richmond, Virginia on December 8th of 1811. Henry went to live with his grandparents, and Edgar and Rosalie were sent to the House of Usher. Say what? The Ushers were an acting family who had been friends with their mother. Did they have twins? Um, yeah. They were actually a pair of twins, uh, James Campbell Usher and Agnes Pye Usher. Ah. Did their house break in two? Maybe they weren't. They didn't stay long, so maybe that's why they didn't stay long. <laughs> but soon after that, Edgar went to live with the Allen family. Mm. That's where we get the Allen Poe. He was never formally adopted by this family. Um, their names were John and Francis. So after he moved in with them, they went to spend about five years in the UK and then moved back to Richmond when he was about 11. He was a fantastic student and a remarkable athlete, which counters what? everything I think I know about Edgar Allan Poe. 
Once he swam six miles against the current in the James River when he was about 16 years old, like set a record. And he was pretty much always possessed by the idea of becoming an author. A schoolmaster said his imaginative powers seemed to take precedence over all his other faculties. And a cousin said he was fully imbued from his early youth with the idea that one day he would become a great writer. John Allen and Edgar Allan Poe had a very strained relationship kind of always. A friend of the family said that Allen never allowed him to lose sight of his dependence on charity. A friend of the family said that Allen never allowed him to lose sight of his dependence on charity. All right, we've got a few complexes developing at least. Yes. And then he developed this like kind of Stacy's mom um, affection or like courtly love syndrome with one of the mothers of one of his classmates. Her name was Jane Stannard, and he would later call her an angel to my forlorn and darkened nature. Now, she died when he was 15, and she was in her 20s, and she would inspire reams of poetry and stories. Did he hide them under his bed in a notebook? Probably. (laughs) I think that's pretty legit. But he and her son would go sit vigil at her graveside for hours. All right, so... You, yeah, some of it's, it's true. It's fitting. <laughs> yeah. Then he enrolled in UVA at Charlottesville when he was 15. Now, Thomas Jefferson was still alive at this time, which is weird because I don't think of these periods in history as overlapping at all. Yeah. He did attend several dinners with Poe and other students, and the school had been designed for fellows who would flounder under the restrictive codes of conduct at places like Harvard and Yale. They were supposed to self-govern. So, despite acing all of his exams, some of which were administered by James Madison and James Monroe. It's so weird. Two former presidents, too. I mean, that's crazy. But he ran up these remarkable, truly remarkable gambling debts. Ah, these are the debts of honor he refused to pay that Griswold was talking about. uh, Oh, there are others. These and others. (laughs) Alan did begrudgingly pay them off, though. That's not true. Griswold did not get that one right. And then jerked him out of school and promptly brought him back to Richmond. Now, in addition to losing his academic future, he also had to deal with a broken engagement as a result of his having gone to Charlottesville. Because he'd been engaged to a young woman named Elmira Royster. But her father had been intercepting Poe's letters that he mailed her from Charlottesville. (gasps) And And reading them? No, he just didn't give them to her, just threw them out. Bastard. Right. So she believed that Poe had forgotten all about her and moved on. Was she forlorn? Purloined? Both? (laughs) Yes, I'm sure. And then he was thrown out of Alan's home after the two had a giant argument. And then he was basically homeless for a little bit. And then he enrolled in the army, which is another thing that runs counter to everything that I thought I knew about Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, this is when he abandons his position that Griswold talks about. (laughs) It's actually really complicated. He did leave the army, but he had permission to do so. Right. It was an honorable discharge. But he basically paid someone to take his place, which is allowed. It was all allowed. But then he failed to pay him. Oh. Oh. (laughs) So that was where the conflict came in. Now, he does leave the army, but then his foster mother or adoptive mother, whatever you want to say, Francis, dies in March of 1829. And he and John Allen reconcile. Very briefly, but he comes back to West Point because at this point he's sought this out as his new means of finishing becoming an adult. Comes back to West Point calling himself the son and heir of John Allen. So they've sorted some shit out. But West Point's a hard place for Poe because they explicitly ban the reading of, quote, novels, romances, and plays. 
Oh no, that's not going to go well. No, and at this point he already describes himself as irrevocably a poet. And then Alan remarries. He marries a woman named Louisa Patterson, and she's 20 years younger than him. And he does this less than a year after Francis dies. And eventually they had three children together, so the whole heir thing out the window. And pretty soon after that, you know, things are always tense between the two of them, but he does get a letter from Alan saying, like, he wishes no further communication with yourself, referring to Poe. So then Poe decided that he needed to get try to get kicked out of West Point because he was miserable. Because, you know, the whole not reading novels, plays, romances, etc. So this is where the passive aggressive comes in? Oh, yes. In a major force. He would do things like miss class, fail to report for duty, just like not show up, leave his post, etc. You know, things like that. They go over well at West Point. And he was eventually brought up on charges of disobedience and neglect. And he offered no defense. So he was discharged. But his classmates had been impressed with his writings that they'd seen. And so they took up a collection of $150 to pay to publish a collection of poems called Poems. So they ran a Kickstarter for him? Basically. Okay. He crowdsourced his first publication. You're right. He is like every goth kid. (laughs) So then he moved in with his aunt, Maria Clem, and they called her Muddy, which I think is funny. Doesn't sound very nice. And she lived in Baltimore, and this is kind of where our Baltimore connection comes from. And during this time, he began experimenting with writing short stories. He was taken with the idea that this form allowed a unity of effect or impression. And he wrote, in the whole composition, there should be no word written of which the tendency, direct or indirect, is not to the one pre-established design. And that's pretty much why you'll read one of his stories in like an early English class because mm-hmm. of that unified singular effect. Singular effect. He is the prime example of singular effect in a short story. Even as wordy as he is, he's very good at that. Oh, it's so over the top. I love it. (laughs) He began entering literary contests and sending submissions to journals, but he had little success. But one day, his friend, John Pendleton Kennedy, asked him to come to dinner, and Poe refused. Kennedy was a little insulted, and he says, why are you refusing? And he says, these are the only clothes I have, and they are too threadbare for me to wear them in polite company. So he is just a Poe boy. Yeah, he really was poor. Like, seriously. Like, Hand to mouth, very poor. Realizing how bad things were, Kennedy wrote to his friend, Thomas Willis White, and said that Edgar Allan Poe was, quote, very clever with his pen. And this, in effect, launched his career. Poe was offered an editorial position with the Southern Literary Messenger, which meant that he had to move back to Richmond. He was really freaked out about the idea of having to move back to Richmond because he had grown up there. People knew him. Alan had said terrible things about him. He'd kind of showed his ass there a little bit. A lot of past. A lot of past, but he had to confront that and move back. Sure, that went over well with his neurotic self. But this is when he kind of becomes that literary critic Mm -hmm. and writer. Master of snark. Yes. But there was another problem with moving to Richmond. And it was that he was going to have to leave Aunt Muddy and her pretty young daughter, Virginia. And Poe had said, come live with me. And they were like, we're good. Thanks. But then he found out that his cousin, Nielsen Poe, had offered to let them come live with him. He was going to become Virginia's guardian and Maria could come along. And so Poe writes again and asks them to move in with him. And they're like, dude, this guy's a judge. You were poor. (laughs) You were Poe. We're okay. But in September of 1835, Poe went to Baltimore and begged them to come to Richmond with him. And he even went to the courthouse and got a marriage license because he wanted Virginia to become his, quote, 
darling little wifey. So this is the he married his cousin. Well, he, not quite yet. They do get married soon after this. But this is where the, the proposals start. So Muddy and Virginia followed to Richmond the next month. They were married in May of 1836, so a few months after this. And for the first two years, it does seem like there was kind of like a hands-off policy, because she was young. She was 14. But they didn't share a bedroom until she was 16. Better? Better. <laughs> My mom got married when she was 16. But anyway, so while at The Messenger, Poe excelled in literary criticism, but he was personally very difficult to work with. His boss complained that he only read books to ridicule their authors. So he hate-read things? <laughs> He was ahead of his time. He was. But he also picked out people like Charles Dickens and Nathaniel Hawthorne that he really believed in and thought, you know, would stand the test of time. And guess what? They have. And established the dark romantics. Right? His time there ended in January of 1837 when White declared, I am as sick of his writings as I am of him. And then he and his family moved to New York City. And they arrived there in February of 1837. Things in New York were not exactly better. People remarked that the Poe's home had an atmosphere of threadbare gentility. Poe always carried himself like a gentleman, though. One of his acquaintances remarked, on most men, his clothes would have looked shabby or seedy, but there was something about this man that prevented one from criticizing his garments. And then he did have his first big success, which was the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. And this is an Antarctic exploration tale, which he supplemented with fictitious logbook entries mock diary entries, and even hieroglyphic inscriptions. One could say a certain Lovecraft was inspired. Skosh. Also, these are framing devices. If you want to look yes, at framing devices, sure. you can go back to that episode on Dear David. But he really enjoyed blurring the lines between fact and fiction. And so while he was working for Burton's Gentleman's Magazine as an editor, he began sending out submissions again, and he began publishing things that you've heard of in late 1839. His first real collection, The Grotesque and Arabesque, was published that year. What a great title. Yes, I agree. In 1841, he moved to Philadelphia and began working with Graham's Magazine. He made a decent salary and had a steady income during this period, which was both new and fun. However, on January 20th of 1842, Virginia coughed up blood. The international sign for TB? Did she really cough up blood? Yes, while wearing a white dress and playing the harp. Like no in less. a handkerchief? No, onto her dress. Oh, ooh, even more dramatic. I know, and then she collapsed and Poe carried her upstairs with this friend following her with a candlestick. This is real! Oh my God. <laughs> and during her illness, Poe began to drink heavily and left Graham's and returned to being very poor. Baudelaire would say, this is one of my favorite quotes I've ever read, he did not drink like an ordinary toper but like a savage, with an altogether American energy and a fear of wasting a minute, as though he was accomplishing an act of murder, as though there were something inside him that he had to kill. That's fantastic. Thank you, Baudelaire. He then decided that he was going to get a job with the U.S. Customs House, and it didn't come through, and so he decided he would just go to Washington and speak directly to President Zachary Tyler, because... Tyler's son, Robert, was a huge fan of Pose. So you could just go up there and be like, hey, can I talk to the president? Well, he had an appointment. He was going to meet with him. Fantastic. But he got nervous. And he decided to have just a little port. A little glass of port. He was found a few hours later wandering around the steps of the Capitol with his coat on inside out. This is going to play in later. (laughs) Looking, quote, quite green. So then he went back to writing. Because that didn't pan out. The security, even back then, was better than that. He was pitching more stories to journals and magazines, and he did perpetrate the Great Balloon Hoax. 
Now, this is considered by some to be the first work of science fiction. Huh. That guy was a genius. It's very kind of Jules Verne mm-hmm. in style. But he published it as if it were new, real in the newspapers as it being a real balloon trip. I wonder why this one counts more than the fake moon hoax thing. Because I know that came out before. I don't know. Probably because he later became a literary giant. Maybe. That might be it. Which, by the way, moon hoax, that's an episode. That's an episode. Oh, you just wait. And then there, this is around the time that we published The Raven, and he actually is working and things like that. And just just so you know, he was apparently quite the antebellum heartthrob. Of course um, he was. A friend said, his remarkable personal beauty, the fascination of his manners and conversation, and his chivalrous deference to women gave him a dangerous power over the sex. Oh, yes. But then his health began to decline in 1848, and self-destructive tendencies began to surface as Virginia's illness began to progress. For example, he was honored at the Lyceum, which is a huge deal in Boston. But instead of composing a new poem, as was the tradition, he read one of his earliest and worst and longest poems. Which one? Al Araf. Yeah, I don't even know which one that is. Right. And it was this kind of like off the rails, literary middle finger to the taste making establishment. Kind of like you didn't like me before. And all of a sudden, you, I mean, like, it's just so self-destructive. And like he had been put in charge of the Broadway Journal after a series of events that took the editor away. And it was his magazine, which had been a dream of his his entire life. Promptly ran that into the ground. And then Virginia died shortly after this when she was only 24 years old. So our ideas of Poe are definitely flavored (laughs) with some of the things that Griswold put out, which later biographies borrowed heavily from. But there's definitely some elements of truth in there, too. Right. For example, some things Griswold seems to have made up. The whole Greek war thing. Russia. Russia was fake news. Nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. But Poe knew about those stories when he was alive and encouraged their spreading. Exactly. So he liked the legend. As I was working on this episode, I started to pick up a trend. Oh, yes? And then I had a a really profound thought occur to me. Maybe it was profound. Maybe. I don't know. I could be wrong. I think Edgar Allan Poe may be the father of... Of American urban legends. Him and Irving were in the same wheelhouse, you're saying? I'm saying they probably parked by each other (laughs) on their way to work and passed notes. But Poe once wrote, All argument founded upon fiction is applicable to the truth. And so I think that while we know that there's some discrepancies and some exaggerations about the character of Poe that came later from Griswold's biographies and, you know, subsequent authors using that as source material... All argument founded upon fiction just might be applicable to the truth when it comes to his character. But why would he have written that? What possible tie could there have been there? Well, he had a habit of law and ordering. Bum bum. Like pulled from today's headlines. Right. Now he was called America's most original creative genius by Alfred Lord Tennyson. And so when you have that kind of creative genius paired with the source material that is like a living, breathing thing. It makes a very enduring, gossipy, repeatable story. So Poe took inspiration from everywhere. He was a magazine editor and writer. He had to keep up with all the latest scandals and sensational murder trials. And he drew a lot of inspiration from this too. So, you didn't think we weren't going to talk about some of Poe's works on this episode, did you? We've already done one. Let's do some more. Okay! 
okay. Party. So let's start with Berenice. We've got our classic gloomy house. We've got cousins in love. Opposed standards. To be married. One afternoon, Aegeus sees Bernice as he sits in the library. When she smiles, he focuses on her teeth. This monomania grips him, and for days he drifts in and out of awareness, constantly thinking about her teeth. He imagines himself holding the teeth and turning them over to examine them from all angles. At one point, a servant tells him that Berenice has died and shall be buried. Oh, this is going to go so well. Now, after this, he awakens to find himself in the library. On the table beside me burned a lamp, and near it lay a little box of ebony. It was a box of no remarkable character, and I had seen it frequently before, it being the property of the family physician. But how came it there upon my table, and why did I shudder in regarding it? There came a light tap at the library door, and, pale as the tenant of a tomb, a menial entered upon tiptoe. His looks were wild with terror, and he spoke to me in a voice tremulous, husky, and very low. What said he? Some broken sentences I heard, told of a wild cry heard in the silence of the night, of the gathering together of the household, of a search in the direction of the sound, and then his tones grew, thrillingly distinct as he whispered me of a violated grave, of a disfigured body discovered upon its margin, a body enshrouded, yet still breathing, still palpating, still alive. His clothes are covered with mud and blood, and there's a spade against the wall. With a shriek, I bounded to the table and grasped the ebony box that lay upon it, but I could not force it open. In my terror, it slipped from out of my hands and fell heavily and burst into pieces, and from it, with a rattling sound, there rolled out some instruments of dental surgery, intermingled with many white and glistening substances that were scattered to and fro about the floor okay so i'm gonna paraphrase make sure i've got this right (laughs) oh you got it when you paraphrase poe you feel a little crazy so this guy gets obsessed with his wife's teeth yeah monomania is a very common trend Mm, in poe's stories stories yes that and hypersensitivity so he becomes obsessed with his wife's teeth and when she dies he sneaks out and pulls her teeth yes after she's been buried. Yes. But twist, she was buried alive. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you're right. It just twists and twists and twists until it's so horrible. Also, you know I have a recurring dream about smashing all my teeth out. You know what Freud would say about that. I know. <laughs> we need to take care of that later. <gasps> Google it. <laughs> so now, of course, there were many stories about people being buried alive at the time. And also, Poe is living in Baltimore when a February 23rd, 1833 article in the Baltimore Saturday Visitor reported that grave robbers had been caught stealing the teeth of corpses for use in dentures. And two years later, when he published Berenice in the March 1835 issue of the Southern Literary Messenger, Poe told his editor that the story originated in a bet that I could produce nothing effective on a subject so singular Provided I treated it seriously. Drop the mic. And then, of course, there's William Wilson, which probably draws more on personal experience than a headline. We discussed this story extensively in our Doppelgangers episode. You'll find that is a trend with these. We will usually say see episode because, oddly enough, we've covered a lot of these stories. 
And you'll remember that in the William Wilson story, there's all kind of debauch going on. And it's set at a college, a young man kind of dealing with the pressures of conforming to his family's expectations and his own wild tendencies, feeling at odds with himself. Or as Poe would later write to Griswold, who would probably twist this into something much darker, while at university, he led, quote, a very dissipated life. The college at that period being shamefully dissolute. Now, he mentioned that he lived with the Ushers for a short period of time. Yes. And they did have twins. Now, in the fall of the House of Usher, one of his famous stories, there is this pair of twins that the unnamed narrator goes to visit at their ancestral home. And the house represents their line. And the two twins eventually die fighting as the house crumbles upon them and splits in two. Well, they're kind of obsessed with each other. It's very Lannister. It's It's got a Lannister tinge to it, and maybe it's the pollution of the bloodline in that way. There's also a Lady Macbeth thing to it, It where she's like this ghostly figure that just kind of pushes him into insanity. It's a whole thing. Go read that. You should read that one. It's a really good one. You can't summarize that one too well. But there is a historical house of Usher known as the Usher House. That was located near Lewis Wharf in Boston until around 1800. When it was torn down, legend persisted that two skeletons were found in the basement, locked in an embrace after being buried alive. The story goes that a sailor sneaked in to have an affair with the homeowner's wife, but was caught in the act and encased in a cellar. That doesn't just sound like the House of Usher. You're right. That sounds like the Casco Madiato. True. So the Cask of Monteado, one of his other famous works, has the narrator... Always nameless. Very frequently. Encasing his dear frenemy, Fortunato. Huh, that means lucky. Mm-hmm. Behind a brick wall <laughs> in the cellar. So also when Poe is at a private station at Fort Independence, there were rumors that a soldier was entombed alive behind one of the fort's walls. And in August of 1844, issue of the Columbian Magazine, there was a story about some workmen who discovered a skeleton in the wall of the Church of St. Lorenzo. Now, in the story, it begins, The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as I best could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You who so well know the nature of my soul will not suppose, however, that gave utterance to a threat. At length, I would be avenged. This was a point, definitely, settled. But the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. I cannot possibly imagine that there is anyone in Poe's life that he might feel that way about. Right. He definitely had a lot of frenemies. And And he carried some serious grudges too. Chips on all the shoulders. So he also may have had some inspiration from some of his own revenge fantasies, such as one of Poe's own enemies, Thomas Dunn English. So he wrote a novel, 1844, or The Power of the SF, in which Poe is portrayed as a drunken, licentious author of the poem, The Black Crow. Was Poe lampooned by two authors? He was probably lampooned by all, all other the authors. authors. What am I Lots saying? Lots of authors. 
So one of the most psychologically twisted and just fantastical stories of Poe is The Mask of the Red Death. I genuinely liked this This one when I was a a kid. I loved it. Published in 1842, the Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body and especially upon the face of the victim were the pest ban which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men. So the story follows Prince Prospero, who attempts to avoid this dangerous plague known as the Red Death, by hiding in his abbey along with a thousand of his closest friends. <laughs> and as they are sitting there trying to, literally trying to ignore what is going out, mm-hmm. going on outside of the abbey walls, they decide to hold a masquerade ball. Funsies. Now there are seven rooms of the abbey and each is decorated with a different color. Now the guests are all instructed not only to dress in costume, but to disguise in the grotesque. And remember, as we discussed in our Goya episode, grotesque has a very nuanced meaning. It's the grotto style in Italian or just something fantastical, sometimes a little monstrous. Also, this reminds me of our Curses episode. The monk comes into his party when he steals the abbey. Oh, right. And like does that pronouncement of the curse. This is very similar to that. Yeah, it's the abbey thing. There were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure, which had been arrested the attention of no single individual before. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had outherited Herod and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the heart of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion, even with the utterly lost to whom life and death are equally just. There are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company, indeed, seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet... All this might have been endured, if not approved, by the mad revelers around. But the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of the face, were besprinkled with the scarlet horror. Too far, man. So Prospero sees this, and he's angry. The whole point of this is to forget about the, the Red Death that's going on around the Abbey. So he attempts to confront the stranger and begins to chase him through the rooms, eventually entering the black room. Nothing good happens in the black room. There was a sharp cry and the dagger dropped, gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which instantly afterwards fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment and seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror 
at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness untenanted by any tangible farm. So does it mean like he wasn't there? There was nothing under the mask. So he really was a dead person or like it just was... It's a personification of the Red Death. I'm sorry. It was a metaphor, (laughs) Samantha. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel and died each in the despairing posture of his fall and darkness and decay and the Red Death held illimitable dominion over all. Damn. So, death is the great equalizer again. Yes. And we have, like, the playing out of the worst-case scenario surrounding the idea of, like, don't think of a polar bear. Like, the more you try to ignore something, the more it overtakes you. Kind of that monomania that we were talking about earlier. Yes, yes. But what personal experience did this one come from? Well, so we talked about TB. Right. And And his mother died of TB, and, you know, his wife died of TB. Lots of friends did. Right, and that... Could be where he gets some that idea of the blood imaging, the bloody clothes, and was speckled with blood. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there was a cholera outbreak, mm. killing lots of people in Baltimore when he lived there. We kind of talked about cholera, how bad it was in our uh, alligators in the sewers episode. I know we just go places, <laughs> and and also there was an account that appeared in the June second, eighteen thirty two issue of the New York Mirror. Describing that in the midst of all this fear and suffering, a group of 2,000 Parisians decided to celebrate what seemed to be the end of the world by throwing a masquerade ball. (laughs) And at the stroke of midnight, one of the guests arrived dressed as the personification of cholera with skeletal armor and bloodshot eyes. Too far, man. (laughs) And Andrew Lloyd Webber definitely took inspiration from this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, he did. And so then another ripped from the headline story was that of the oblong box. Sounds familiar. Right. We covered that extensively in our Family Curses episode. It was the Colt murder. Samuel Colt's brother killed a man named Sam Adams, who was not that Sam Adams, put him in an oblong box. It's a whole thing. Go listen to that episode. We talk about it a whole bunch, but Poe definitely wrote a story about it. And then he wrote a story called Some Words with a Mummy, which was about... A mummy unwrapping party, which we discussed in our King Tut episode. One more, dear listeners. Lots more. One more for now. The Telltale Heart, published in 1843. So as you may know, in this tale, a man kills another man, hides him under his floorboards. This is landlord, isn't it? The old, I guess it's, it's the say. old man. They it's the say. old man. It's the old man, glassy, filmy eye. That's it's the it. eye. Evil eye. But, as with many of his stories, our narrator, first person, so we can get that singular effect. True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am, but why will you say that I am mad? The disease has sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthy, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded. With what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. 
uh, cautiously and very sanely, not mad, he plans the murder of the old man with the evil, filmy, vultury eye. Understand. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. So the police are called when neighbors report shrieks. Because the old man was making all this racket, right? No, he says, I told them it was only me who was crying out in my dreams. I kind of believe it. The officer's dead. He said, my manner had convinced them I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached and I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore, I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards. But the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, louder, louder. And still, the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no, they heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. I felt that I must scream or die, and now again, hark, louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. So, one thing I will tell you is that if you have read Poe to yourself, that's one thing. Poe's really great read aloud. Oh, yeah. Like, it's, it is so much fun. And this is one of those stories. And... I love to think of him like going over the words again and again. And cause you know, he said it out loud. Mm-hmm. I love to think of him like in a study, like just like, saying this over and over again and cutting stuff and editing it. I, I just, it's a very living document for me. But I love the story. It reminds me of the cult case a little bit with like the dismemberment and the coolness of the assailant and things like that. There's definitely more than that going on. Now there was another famous case at the time. Mm-hmm which was the 1840 trial of James Wood for the murder of his daughter. Now, Wood pled that he was not guilty by reason of insanity. Hmm. The trial was covered in Alexander's Weekly Messenger, with the writer saying, It appears from the testimony that the conduct of Wood, when purchasing his pistol at the shop of the gunsmith, was characterized by entire self-possession, a remarkable calmness and evenness of manner, altogether foreign in his usual nervous habit. His replies were cool and without the slightest apparent trepidation. Now he says that Wood's calm demeanor might lead some to believe him a premeditated and cold-blooded assassination rather than a madman, but a nervous trepidancy would have manifested itself if not in an ordinary form, at least in an overstrained endeavor to be calm. But in the supposition of his insanity, all is natural, all in full accordance with the well-known modes of action of the madman. Now, the writer believes this calmness is merely the cunning of the maniac, a cunning which baffles that of the wisest man of sound mind, the amazing self-possession with which at times assumes the demeanor and preserves the appearance of perfect sanity. Now, the jury in the case did rule in Wood's favor and sent him to an asylum. So I'm guessing he was like in the right place at the right time to have read this? Well, he wrote it. 
Oh, he was the writer. Oh, for, yes. Oh, oh, yes. oh yes. nice yes. twist no, there. You like my twist? I'll I sing do. a little poe there. A little poe. A little, very nice You're reveal. Like my goodness. Poe was always very interested in trials and murder cases and even detectives before there was really a word for detectives. He read a lot about Vidoc, the very famous French detective, and was inspired by that. And eventually, Arthur Conan Doyle, because he must weigh in in every episode we do, along with Henry James, apparently, um, said that Poe basically invented the detective story. Well, if he's giving you credit. Right? Now he, the first of his detective stories was The Gold Bug, but the first, Dupin, who was his French detective, loosely based on Vidoc. His Sherlock Holmes. Right. Before there was Sherlock Holmes. Right. Was featured in the short story, Murders in the Rue Morgue. Now, this was kind of the first detective story, the first locked room mystery, and he would eventually go on to write the first detective story based on true crime. And you mentioned that he like read Barnaby Rudge and was able to kind of deduce yes. what was happening, like what the solution was. Yes. And he called that ability, and it's like impossible to pronounce, oh, no. called that ability, I have not found any suggestions on how to pronounce this because I think it was a Poe word, ratiocination. Yeah, and he used that in some of his other you know, writing such as in his debunking of the Mechanical Turk. Which we'll have more on in our bonus episode over on the Patreon page, if you're interested. You just need us talking about Poe for a little bit longer, which we're going to do anyway. <laughs> but, so Murders in the Room Morgue comes out. It's a sensation. Everyone's very excited about it. Everyone thinks it is completely original. But there is this one idea about it that just plagues Poe. And he's like, well, of course the detective was able to solve the mystery because I invented the mystery. Good thought. So he decided he would take a real unsolved mystery and put Dupin on the case and see what he could work out. So a real mystery. A real mystery. Poe's on the case. Poe's on the Well, Dupin is, but Poe. Poe slash Dupin. <laughs> so let me start by telling you the true story, and then we'll look at what Poe does with it. Suit you? I'm on board. Okay. I'm in for the ride. So a lot of this comes from the book, The Beautiful Cigar Girl by Daniel Stashauer. And it's a really good read. I would suggest you check it out if you're interested in finding out a little bit more. Pause. You can go read more about this. <laughs> so on July 25th, 1841, Mary Cecilia Rogers, who owned a boarding house with her mother, Phoebe, on Nassau Street in New York City, was preparing breakfast for their lodgers. As she went upstairs a little before 10 a.m. to tell her beau and resident, Daniel Payne, that she was going out. And he was in the middle of shaving, so they spoke through a half-closed door. And she told Daniel that she was going to visit her aunt, Mrs. Downing, who lived on Jane Street. And she said that she planned to accompany her aunt's family to church. She asked Payne if he'd meet her back at the corner of Broadway and Anne in front of Barnum's Museum, where the omnibus would drop her, so he, that he could escort her home safely. Wait, we get Barnum in this episode, too? Yes, we do! Cha-cha, hat trick! We're dropping everybody. <laughs> All the names. So he's going to meet her in front of Barnum's when the omnibus drops her off. He says, that's fine, and says, I'll see you later. Bye, I've got to finish shaving my face. So then he goes about his lazy Sunday routine. Chronic what cools of Narnia, etc. And so he goes to meet his brother, John, and then they go kind of tootle around like a market, and then he goes to a tavern to read some newspapers, and then around two, he goes to eat lunch by himself, and then he returns home to the Nassau boarding house, where he takes a three-hour nap before going to meet her. That's a convenient nap. Right. So upon waking up, he goes to meet Mary in front of Barnum's. 
But on his way, he runs into his brother, along with his brother's wife and family, and they visit for a few minutes, and then he goes on to the omnibus stop, and he's standing there waiting for her when he remembers that the omnibus does not run on Sundays, which is a problem. And then a thunderstorm breaks out. No. You mean a clap of thunder as he, as he realizes the omnibus right. will not be appearing. Right. And so then he goes to a tavern to wait out the rain and then goes back to the boarding house at around 9 p.m. Now there he speaks briefly to Mrs. Hayes, who is another one of Mary's aunts that lives in this boarding house. And they agree that Mary would probably not venture out in the rain and that she would probably just stay with the Downings overnight. So the next morning at breakfast, she was not back yet, and Mary's mother, Phoebe, was already anxious, but Payne was not that alarmed. He believed this was still within the realm of normal behavior, so he left for work. He was a cork cutter. What's that? A person who cuts corks. Thank you for clearing that up. I did, as if nothing was wrong. And then he returns home for lunch, and Mary's still not back. And Phoebe grabs his arm and is like, please go look for my baby. And so he does. And he kind of goes up Broadway toward Jane Street, asking people he ran into along the way if they'd seen her and just kind of not taking it too seriously. But then he gets to the aunt's house. When he speaks with her, he finds out that Mary never showed up there. And so she couldn't have spent the night there. And so now there's a problem, right? Like we've gone from like, she'll be back, quit worrying about it, to oh fuck. No one's seen her. Yes. So he expands his search from Harlem to Stanton Island. And by late Monday afternoon, he was very seriously concerned and decided to stop by at the offices of the New York Sun and place a missing person ad, which read, Left her home on Sunday morning on July 25th. A young woman had white dress, black shawl, blue scarf, leghorn hat, light-colored shoes, and parasol, light-colored. It is supposed some accident has befallen her. Whoever will give information respecting her at 126 Nassau Street shall be rewarded for their trouble. Why did he suspect some accident had befallen her? Is like what puts me off about that. But anyway. Like, what else would have happened? Run off? Could be. So this advertisement was seen by a fellow named Mr. Alfred Cromelin. Now he had been a former boarder at the Nassau house and a former suitor of Mary's. Scandalous. Oh no. He was not the scandalous one. You will see. On that Wednesday following her disappearance, he did read this ad, however. So Alfred had moved into the boarding house in December of 1840, and both Phoebe and Mary seemed very impressed with his, quote, fastidious manners and courtesy. Now, he'd become very smitten with Mary, like, from the time he moved in, and they had seemed to be on the road to courtship. Now, also living in the home at this time was a man named Archibald Padley. Now, we're going to have to deal with these guys a bunch, so we're getting them all out right now. And he'd become very close friends with Cromlin. Now, he considered Mary a, quote, worthy girl. That sounds coded. Right? But he never pursued her personally. Probably because Alfred was so taken with her. Like, he had a mad crush on her. Now, Daniel Payne moves in. And he moves into the boarding house. And he seems to move into Mary's line of sight as well. Now, tension between Alfred and Daniel, instantaneous. Payne was eventually referred to as her fiancé, but it doesn't seem like there was any formal promise of marriage. It was just like a way to say, kind of shorthand, that they were seriously involved. But the two men were apparently quite exact opposites. Alfred was very bookish and courtly, while Daniel was known to be a drinker. Author notes that this was an impressive feat at this time, as everyone drank, but Daniel would drink three bottles of wine over the course of dinner. 
and he was known as a toss pot. A toss pot. Mm-hmm. It's my new Twitter handle. Right? Padley, the kind of third wheel guy, described their relationship as frosty. Phoebe Rogers weighed in on Alfred's behalf, saying that she considered Daniel a wastrel. There's so many fun vocabulary words. So good. I'm learning so much. Um, which had the predictable effect of galvanizing Mary's affections toward said wastrel. He was a bad boy, yeah. is what you're saying. Yes. So by June of 1841, things had reached an untenable level, and Alfred's walked in to discover that the lovers are in the parlor. No. So Daniel Payne and Mary are in the parlor, and he said they were engaged in, quote, unseemly intimacies. God, I bet he saw her knee. And he's like very affronted. And he's like, you must not touch the lady this way. And so Payne looks him dead in the eye, puts his hand on Mary's knee. Mm. I know. And told him to, quote, mind his own affairs. Oh, damn. Surprised they didn't have a duel. Well, I think at this point, Alfred probably just clutched his pearls and swooned. But after recovering, he goes upstairs, packs his things and leaves, telling Mary that he was sorry for the step she was taking. With that toss pot. Yes. But he also tells her that he would be there if she ever needed anything. And it seems that eventually she did need something. Because two days before she disappeared, Alfred had received a note asking him to call at the Nassau house, which was written in Mary's handwriting, but signed with her mother's name. And he thought that was weird. So he showed it to Padley as they were walking to their office and asked what he made of it. And when they reached the door, they discovered a second message, which had been written on a chalkboard by the door. And it contained the same request, but it was signed with Mary's name. And there was a red rose placed in the door's keyhole. Okay, this is, this is really odd. <laughs> Seems weird. Now, Alfred could not have known at this time, but on that day, Phoebe had demanded that Mary break things off with a toss pot. Toss pot. And Mary had apparently agreed, but she had not yet broken the news to Daniel. Without this knowledge, Cromelin decided that it was best to stay away quote, having been coldly received when last there. But when he saw that she was missing, he went directly to the house where he found Phoebe and Tosspot sitting around looking quite worried. Oh, he knew who did it. And Tosspot. Da- and Daniel was quite annoyed that he had showed up and just like turns around and walks out of the room without saying a word. So he speaks to Phoebe, mom, and gets all the details on the disappearance. And he goes to the police, which is a novel what? fucking idea. Crazy. I know. So he's like taking notes, goes to the police as soon as he finds out about it. And then he and Padley begin their own search because they were sure that Tosspot could not handle it. And Padley suggested that she may have gone to Hoboken. Who goes to Hoboken? Everyone. What? It was quite the vacay spot, apparently. I did not know this. But it was also known for its brothels. Oh, that's why. (laughs) Which might explain its popularity. There were rampant reports of women being trafficked to Hoboken. I was going to say earlier, do they think she was like abducted? Sold into white slavery? Yes. So he and Padley took a ferry to New Jersey, intending to call on these houses of ill repute and see if she'd been kidnapped and taken there. I'm sure they did. Right? Tosspot would have got distracted. I think that's exactly why they went there. Because they're like, there's no way he actually made it to every house. (laughs) Contemporaneous reports surrounding the Hoboken brothels. Quiet order and taste abound. The bell is answered by an attentive servant. The lady boarders of these houses never walk the streets nor solicit company. They are selected for their beauty, grace, and accomplishments. They dress in great eloquence and quite decorously, as females generally do at balls, 
parties or at concerts, from whence comes this unceasing supply of brilliant, well-educated, and accomplished and beautiful girls. They come, many of them, from the best homes in the land. Men and women are employed in this nefarious work. When the victim is uncommonly attractive, the pay is large. No system is better arranged. They hang about hotels under pretense of being strangers to New York. They get acquainted with these young lady visitors and invite them to church, to a walk, to the opera. I'm sure they do. (laughs) And when confidence is gained, they are invited to call at the house of an acquaintance. And after a pleasant evening, they wake up in the morning to know that they have been drugged and ruined and that their parents are in despair. Are their kidneys gone? It's very much that story. I think so. But their virtue's gone. Oh, no. They just want to take the poor girl to church. Right. And then they were just taken advantage of. Right. And got their kidneys stolen. Clutch my pearls. Anyway, so Alfred is like, surely this is what's happened to her. Most likely scenario. And he's feeling very guilty because he had ignored her pleas for help. And... He had moved on to this, like, true anxiety, guilt moment. And Daniel, however, is locked in firm denial. Uh, He insisted that she would return. And maybe she'd try to write. And the letter got lost. That seems likely. Sure. Mrs. Hayes, the aunt who lived in Nassau, reminded Phoebe of the episode that occurred three years earlier. Hmm? And said that Daniel was probably right. What happened three years earlier? Well, that's a very good question. That was the first time that Mary disappeared. Was she at a brothel? We don't know. It's very mysterious. So in October of 1838, Mary did go missing from her place of employment. Um, She and her mother were living with Mrs. Hayes at the time. And that afternoon, Phoebe discovered a suicide note left on Mary's dressing table. Really? Press coverage was rampant because Mary was kind of like this local celebrity. Why was she a celebrity? Well, she was employed at Anderson's Tobacco Emporium on Broadway. And this is owned by one Mr. John Anderson. Hiring an attractive young woman to work in your shop was very popular and common in Europe. But in America, we come from Puritan stock, or at least they do. And this was considered a little unseemly. Seems they've gotten over that. Yes. (laughs) And they feared that this would have a, quote, coarsening effect on young women. So she was somewhat of a novelty. Now, Mr. Anderson paid Mary a very generous wage and promised her mother that she would never be left alone in the shop and that he would escort her home each evening. Now, Phoebe and Mary even lived with him for a while when they first moved to New York City from Connecticut. Now, she was written about in various newspapers by various newsmen and aspiring writers because the shop was popular with those groups of people. It was near a place called Shakespeare's Tavern, which was a literati hangout. People like James Fenimore Cooper and Washington Irving were fans of that place wow. and patrons. Oh, yeah. And this location was across from City Hall, which brought in political figures and the reporters who hoped to get them to comment on things. And so they would go hang out around City Hall, wait for them, and pop over and get a cigar or two. So Mary was, was an obvious part of the attraction to this shop. One account said that young men went there only to, quote, preen and squawk before her. Fabulous. Uh, one young writer even composed a verse. She's picked for her beauty from many a bell and placed near a window Havana's to sell. Ah, clever. For well, her employer's aware that her face is an advertisement certain to empty his cases. Alas, 
that necessity ever should force a female to take such an unworthy course to make her a magnet to draw in the spoony the coxcomb and puppy for the sake of their money but still tis our duty in every sphere that providence places us meekly to bear and in none upon earth can honour be stained if our own self-respect is with firmness maintained list not the flatter's vows they're a joke like a weed he is smoking they'll all end in smoke reflect on the danger that hymns in thy station and reflect unsullied exposed to temptation i bet he read that in his notebook and hid it under his bed too well it's like hey don't fall for it they don't really love you he's the he's the guy at the strip club hitting on he's like stripper. yeah yes yes he's like i think she likes me they're paid to do that so one newsman wrote it is a most curious thing her notoriety is unencumbered by position or achievement so she's like one of the first people who's famous for being famous. Oh, God, she was a Kardashian. Right. Others would write about her beauteous features and her dark smile. That was something that everyone, like, was in tons of accounts about her. In another wrote, she was amiable and pleasing and rather fascinating in all of her manners. As the news that the object of so many's affection had disappeared made its way around town, it was only natural that all of those aspiring writers and newsmen covered the disappearance. Yeah. Their lovely cigar girl has gone missing. Right. And this is terrible. Something mysterious, the New York Sun says. And it states that her suicide note had been found and had bid her mother a, quote, an affectionate and final farewell. Now, the story appeared in the New York Journal of Commerce, stating that the message revealed a fixed and unalterable determination to destroy herself. The Sun added that the cause of this wayward freak of the young lady is supposed by her friends to be a disappointed love, she having recently received the address of a certain widower who, it is said, deserted her, and by his desertion has brought upon a state of mind which prompted her, it is feared, to commit self-destruction. Other papers believe that she had eloped with a suitor. The Times Intelligencer reported, it seems Miss Rogers was employed at Anderson's Cigar Store on Broadway, and there she met and fell in love with a gallant gay Lothario. Everyone was like, it could have been me. Right. Uh, And they went on to say that after a month of cooing across the counter at Anderson's store, which ended like smoke out of one of that gentleman's cigars into thin air, he went missing. And that's why she went missing. And when she left, it is supposed she took with her a shilling and it is supposed with the intention of purchasing poison. No. And it was a very tongue in cheek account, which makes people kind of studying the case in hindsight think it was like a jilted suitor like somebody that liked her that was pissed that she went missing and thought she had run off with someone so the next day the commercial intelligence reported that she was home with her mother what why and they said that the note had been a cruel joke played on phoebe and some believe that john anderson the owner of the cigar store had actually concocted the entire thing as a publicity stunt which would have been genius let's just say hey you get paid leave and everyone's gonna like come here cool fake news Mm mm-hmm One newsman wrote, after the smoke of the extra cigars purchased during the excitement had cleared away, the young woman returned good as new. I like how no one passes up the opportunity to use the smoke imagery. We're on it, guys. We are on the case. So when she returned to work, a mob of looky-loos had like taken over the shop and she was so overwhelmed by the crowd that she swooned. Of course. Did you clutch her pearls? I'm sure. And concerned hands quote brought her home she told her mother that she would never again show herself at the store but when the commotion died down she did and she remained employed there until her brother came into some money and she and her mother left to start the boarding house in 1839 so with this in mind mrs hayes was like phoebe she's done this before 
But Phoebe, the mom, says, I fear that we shall never see Mary again. So she was taking it seriously. I mean, she's been missing for a few days now. No one has seen hide or hair of her. Well, on July 28th, many New Yorkers made their way to Elysian Fields, where baseball was invented, by the way. And the strange little grotto, which was known as Sybil's Cave, which is located just past an outcropping known as Castle Point. This is all real. Elysian Fields, Sybil's Cave, Castle Point. Sounds very made up. Right. But it's all real. Uh, Now, the cave held a spring that was known as, quote, the Fountain of Youth, and it was hailed for its restorative powers. Now, there were three men out walking along the shoreline, and they noticed something strange floating in the water about two to three hundred yards out. Wow, they have good eyesight. Keen, keen, keen of sight. Like Hans Christian Andersen's character. (laughs) And they thought it might be a person and they might be in trouble, so they rushed to this nearby boathouse and got a rowboat. Now, upon reaching the object, they received a, quote, evil shock. It was badly bruised and beaten and waterlogged young woman. And they managed to loop a rope under her chin and tow her back to shore. And they stayed with the body for about half an hour before leaving the scene because they just, like, couldn't figure out how to get her into shore without, like, tearing up her body. But two bystanders emerged from the growing crowd on the bank and waded into the water and manually dragged her onto the shore. So we have a beautiful, young, drowned, dead woman the most poetical topic in all the world someone once said who said that poe oh of course and everyone that wrote a murder ballad mm-hmm. now on the beach people were walking by to look at the corpse and people were like poking it with sticks and a herald reporter who happened to be on the scene took a few notes later writing that her forehead and face appeared to have been battered and butchered to a mummy her features were scarcely visible so much violence had been done to her Altogether, she presented the most awful spectacle that the eye could see. So maybe not fitting the imagery to the T. Artistic license will get us there, right? Of course. (laughs) It was around this time that Alfred and Padley, who were in the midst of their search, arrived on the Riverwalk in Hoboken. And this young boy runs past, I imagine like a newsie, screaming. Was he singing? Yes. That a body had been found near Castle Point. And the men turned and immediately ran in that direction. And they found the crowd circling the corpse. And Alfred rushes to her side, looks her over, tears open her sleeve, rubs her bare arm, and then cried, Dear God, this is Mary Rogers. Oh, God, the news may kill her mother. Why did he tear her sleeve off? Okay, this is how he identified her. And he said it was by a distinctive pattern of hair that she had on her arm. Okay, I can see that. I was like, all right, I'll give it to you. So he knelt down and kind of lords over her, like, kind of crouches protectively until some officials arrive. Dr. Richard Cook was the New Jersey coroner, and also a justice named Gilbert Merritt appeared on the scene. And the body was moved to a nearby building where Cook conducted an autopsy while Merritt gathered witnesses for an inquest. Now, Cook's autopsy is ridiculously well conducted for one that is done, like, not in a proper morgue at this point in history, the 1840s. And at almost dark. Like, it's one of the better ones I've read, even including modern ones. I was very impressed with this work. Cook was satisfied that she was not drowned because she had no foam on her mouth. Also, her arms were not extended, as he had seen in other drowning cases. But they were bent over the chest, so rigid that considerable force had been required to straighten them. Ew. He also noted that there were handprint-shaped bruises on her throat which led him to believe that she had been straddled and partially choked by a man's hand. He then noticed a crease around her neck and, quote, passing my hand behind her ear, I accidentally felt a small knot 
and found that a piece of lace was tied so tightly around the neck as to have been hidden from sight in the flesh of the neck, and it was tied in a hard knot. This led him to conclude that she was strangled to death, and he realized that the lace had been torn from the underskirts of her dress. So he supposed that she had been choked manually until she lost consciousness, and that at that point, Lace had been ripped from her dress and pulled so tightly around her throat that it embedded in her skin and kept her from ever coming to. Now, Cook also discovered that her undergarments were in disarray and turned to matters, quote, so delicate in nature that the Herald would not report them. He also discovered clusters of bruises in her, quote, feminine region that led him to suppose that she'd been brutally violated by no fewer than three assailants. He also believed that her wrist had been bound while she was violated, creating that position and that she was untied before her body was disposed of. And he found a muslin loop around her neck that appeared to have been a gag, and she had raw skin on her back and shoulders, leading him to believe that she had struggled on her back on a hard surface or on the ground. He noticed patterns that led him to believe that she had been dragged, and a hitch had been made of some of her clothing for that purpose. It was looped around her waist. He also deduced that she had been redressed, because her hat would have come off during the violation, but it was found on her. And he also noted that it was not tied in a lady's knot, but a sailor's knot. Well, that is an extremely impressive autopsy report. For 1840s. For any time. I know. So he concludes his exam by 8 p.m. And then at that hour, the inquest begins. Because it was going to be hard to gather all these people up. Right. I mean, you want to get the interview right then with all the people that are there. They'll disappear. He decides to interview the two, two of the men who'd gone out in the rowboat to retrieve her and also talks to Alfred and Padley and the coroner. Now, Alfred stated that he had never heard her virtue question in the least, and Dr. Cook testified that she had evidently been a person of chastity and good habits. He referred to the crime as bestial, and the inquest returned a verdict that Mary had been killed by violence committed by some person or persons unknown. Now, Alfred was given a package of several of Mary's effects, swatches of fabric, the flowers from her straw hat, a garter, a shoe, a lock of hair, etc., to take back to Phoebe. Now, Alfred was under the impression that these were keepsakes, but they were actually an attempt to kind of double-check his identification of the body. But he'd missed the ferry back to New York and had to stay in a hotel for the night. Back in the city, a man named H.G. Luther, who was one of the men who had boated out to retrieve the body, had gone to tell Phoebe Rogers of the bad news. Now, he found her with Daniel Payne, our tosspot, at the boarding house, and he reported that neither of them seemed much distressed by it. I distinctly felt that the news was not unexpected. That is very sketchy. I know. Now, Payne did not go out to Hoboken until the next day, which is also kind of sketchy, as he had been searching for her until this point. Supposedly. Searching for her in the tavern. Right. What? Tosspot. And Cromwellan's there, and he knows that Cromwellan's going to like appear to be the, the man. You know, her man, and he doesn't need to go contest that. I don't know. Anyway, and it does seem strange that he didn't, like, run out there to double check since the identification of the body was much in question. In fact, the New York City officials took the unusual step of having the body of Mary Rogers exhumed from a New Jersey burial ground and brought back to the city on August 11th. And a series of inflammatory articles had run in the press, and they assumed that she must have been murdered in the city and drifted downriver. So this would have put it within New York City's jurisdiction, and so they're chiding the New York authorities for not doing more about the case. Even though it's in New Jersey. <laughs> right. They did order a more thorough exam and asked Phoebe to come and identify the body. Now, her trip to the dead house. I'm sorry, what? That's the term they use for the morgue. Wonderful. Right? Literal. <laughs> right? 
uh, was very breathlessly covered in all the newspapers. According to one account, the air of an inexpressible burden, as though her recent loss had extinguished any will toward life, covered Phoebe Rogers. And the New York Journal of Commerce described the scene. Difficult it would be for the most imaginative mind to conceive a spectacle more horrible or humiliating to humanity. The body, which was described as a decomposed mass of putrefaction Ooh, man. was not shown to Phoebe because of its shocking condition. But Daniel Payne was called in to view it. The Times and Commercial Intelligence reported that event this way. And as nothing should be wanting to send the moral home to men's hearts and render it more painfully impressive, the young man, who was to have been in a few days married to her, now stood beside the rough box in which all that remained of her love was lying, her whom, but a few days back, he had been seen exulting in her youth, filled with life, hope, and animation, whom he so ardently wished to make his wedded wife, to fold to his bosom, to press to his heart of hearts, now lay before him as an inanimate mass of matter, so hideous, horrible, and offensive that the bare idea of coming into contact with it was almost sufficient to make the gorge rise." Yellow journalism. Wow. Yellow that journalism. Is some writing. So Phoebe was shown the dress, not the body. And she was able to identify it because there was a pattern of stitch work used to mend a tear that she recognized as Mary's handwork. Very impressive. Now, the press. The press is such a thing. They run away with the story. They've covered a few cases, like big trials. They know it sells papers. Oh, yeah. They are in it to win it. Of course. Now, they also think that they are instrumental in bringing justice. Like, they feel like they're being effective because now the New York City authorities are looking into it and it's a whole thing. So, they continue their coverage and they throw out wild speculation like that it's just Mardi Gras beads. That's their job. Just wild speculation. Who'd they try to stick it to? Pain. Oh, the toss pot. Yes. Now, he was very offended by this idea. He did not, I'm sure he he did not want to be called a murderer. Who so would? he actually brought in a stack of sworn affidavits into the press office of the Times Evening Star that accounted for all of his movements on the fatal Sunday, as the day she went missing was later dubbed. Yes. And they concluded, no one can read the affidavits without feeling that Mr. Payne stands exonerated from every shadow of suspicion. I will say that is an extraordinary step. <laughs> Now, the theory that she had been abducted and violated by one of the infamous gangs of New York <gasps> was really the first one to catch on in the press. So Daniel Day-Lewis did it. Daniel Day-Lewis did do it. After he was done with Finmore Cooper at the Shakespeare Tavern. <laughs> so good. No, not exactly, but exactly. Now, the person who really pushed this theory was none other than James Gordon. Commissioner Gordon? James Gordon Bennett. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, different James Gordon. Um, Walt Whitman described him as a reptile making his path with slime wherever he goes and breathing mildew at everything fresh and fragrant. People only wrote shade at this time. <laughs> they weren't even anonymous. They put their name to it. You know? oh, yeah. <laughs> now, Bennett believed that the press is the living jury of the nation. So he had like a moral calling to speculate. Sell papers? Oh, yeah, okay. to speculate. He'd come to prominence when covering the Helen Jewett murder and knew how profitable it would be to follow the story. I just have to comment here that the shade from news editors was 
fucking epic at this point. So Bennett once said that one of the other news editors had no more brains than an oyster. He called another an infidel. Horace, Horace Greeley called Bennett an unmitigated blockhead. Mm, they're probably all true. And then in response, Bennett said that an iron cover New England squash was a more capable editor than Greeley. Oh, of course. That old insult. <laughs> iron covered New England squash. Knowing that he's going to sell papers, knowing that he is ginning up public sentiment, the next move is 3D chess, going after these plagues on society, blaming the current baddies. Ruffians. Right. So he was sure that this horrible crime had been committed by the blacklegs. What's a blackleg? Well, it's a thing you call bad people. Oh, I thought it was one of the gangs. Well, I don't know that it was specifically one of the gangs, but they're like ravens who have black legs and they cheat and connive. Ah, I see. I see that. And chastise the police for letting them roam free to rob, rape, and pillage with wild abandon, confident that the authority present has no possible challenge for them. So he's calling the police out. He's going to get people pissed at the police. He's going to tell them that he's the only one that knows the truth and make them come to his paper to get it. He determined that it was time for the citizens of New York to do something about these soap locks. What's a soap lock? They are. The, the gangs. Why are they soap locks? Because they grease their curls. Why don't they call them greasers? They will later. <sighs> Bennett announced that they were forming a committee of concerned citizens to meet and discuss a plan for safety in light of this threat and to collect reward money for information on Mary Rogers' killer. If this is not pursued, no woman will be safe, he writes. So now he's guilting all of the other news editors into coming to this meeting, or he will chastise them for not taking the threat to womanly virtue that these ruffians' blackleg soaplocks present seriously. And you could sell more papers. And you can sell more papers. So he has all of the news editors at this meeting for concerned citizens and some you know, prominent citizens and civic leaders. Now they all get together at this home near Nassau street and they offer remarks on the case. Now Bennett has one of his reporters offer resolutions to be adopted by this committee. Now what they really are is the Herald's past week of coverage of the Mary Rogers murder. So he's making everyone agree with the Herald's theories, not just agree reprint. Oh, so After hours of whipping up the crown, they are adopted as the resolutions of the committee. They vote on it. The eyes have it. And then the next day, they're reprinted in all the other newspapers. So now the Herald's theory is everywhere. And people will be coming back to see where the follow-up is. Ah. This is guerrilla viral marketing. (laughs) So smart. It really is. Devious. Devious. So John Anderson, the owner of the cigar shop, was there at the meeting of the Concerned Citizens. And he and Bennett both gave $50 toward a reward fund, which was added to by the governor himself, who would later be Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of State, Seward, and an offer of pardon upon receiving information about who the other assailants had been was also granted by the governor. And the total posted at this time was $1,350, which would be around $38,000 today. Oh, wow. I mean, this is like a huge celebrity case. It absolutely is. Now, despite all of the grousing by Bennett and all the other newspapers, the police had been working. They had even made an arrest on August 5th, 
Of who? A sailor. Always a sailor. It's always a sailor or a doctor. Can't trust either. He was a 22-year-old sailor named William Kaikuk who had been taken off his ship and brought to the tombs. Now, he'd formerly been a resident at the Nassau Street boarding house, and now he was a sailor. And he'd gotten on a ship out of town the day after the murder. Sketch. So it was solved, but not really. He admitted to knowing Mary, but said that they had not been intimately acquainted, and he told police that he had been visiting a sister the night of the murder, and then gone to Five Points to meet a girl. I know what happens at Five Points. Black legs. Anyway. Gangs of New York. But more than a dozen witnesses had come forward to testify to his whereabouts. So, whoopsie daisy. (laughs) Maybe not. Let's try again. They did. So there was a letter called the TDW letter, which had been sent anonymously to the papers, which stated that it had seen Mary in a rowboat full of soap locks, and this was much pursued. Oh, this sounds very legit. (laughs) Eventually, they did track down the ruffians. And thanks to a statement by the woman who had actually been abducted by the gang and been treated, quote, very roughly and badly, but not violated, they were exonerated. Because she was not Mary Rogers. She was not Mary Rogers, nor was she dead. But so, they solved a different case? Yeah, that's going to happen. It's going to be a thing that happens. Good. Women were treated terribly. <laughs> I know, the, tr- the tip sounds like, yeah, sure you did. But then they actually find the guy. I know, I thought like the editor had made it up or something. Oh, they do that too. I left For a lot sure. of those out. Then there was a brief investigation into a man named James Finnegan, who was a rowdy of known rascality. He had confessed to friends and had, according to the Post at least, been in possession of a ring belonging to Mary Rogers. But according to the police and corroborating witnesses, he had an airtight alibi. I just want to be a rowdy of known rascality. That's why that's included. And he had been really. In- well, no. He had been engaged in driving a carriage for his employer to church, and his employer swore to it. So, no. No, no. Not him either. So, he was just a good boy going to church. Well, he was a he was a rowdy of known rascality driving a good boy to church. Oh, okay. To be fair. Now, then we come to the arduous saga, the brilliant, brilliant saga of Joseph Morse and Officer Hilliker. This could all by itself be a story. So Officer Hilliker was approached by a woman named Martha on July 22nd, and she told him that she wanted to give a statement regarding her husband, Joseph Morse. And Hilliker's like, of course you do, because you have two black eyes. Oh, no, that's terrible. And so he knows what's up, and he's he takes her statement. So Joseph was known for dressing like a dandy. A dandy? Yes. He wore a top hat and had Thick mutton chops. And he was also known to be a womanizer. A womanizing dandy. Mm-hmm. Now, when he was confronted by his wife on this point, he beat the shit out of her. A shithead womanizing dandy. Yes. And so after taking her plate, Hilliker goes out to pick Morse up. But he's told by Morse's apprentice, Morse is an engraver, and his apprentice's name was Mr. Edward Bookout, that he'd left for the day. He'd booked out. In reality... Morse was going home to apologize to his wife, and she forgave him. And Morse hid out for three days at home, before telling her that he was going to Hoboken on the evening of July 25th, which was the day Mary went missing. Now, neighbors reported there had been a shouting match, and when Martha followed him onto the street, asking why he was going to Hoboken, one person said that he was screaming in a rage, tore part of her earring out, struck her, and ran away. Oh, shit. (laughs) So he's not a quality human. No. 
So she reported this development to Officer Hilliker, who was annoyed that she'd allowed him back in the house in the first place, but nonetheless added a charge of abandonment to his warrant, and really thought little about it until the next day, when he went to sit in on some court sessions for Justice Taylor. And two witnesses came forward with info on someone they thought might be Mary Rogers in Hoboken on the day she went missing. And they said that they'd seen her with a man with mutton chops, Uh-oh. dandyish clothing, Uh-oh. and a top hat, arguing on a bench near the water, and that the woman was wearing a flower bonnet and a light-colored dress. Later, thinking back on it, they wondered if that woman had been her. Hilliker, on the other hand, thought that there was a really good chance that this was Morse. And then he did, like, really, 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 really good police work. Are you being facetious? No. Oh, wow. I'm really not. So he checked and made sure that he was in Hoboken at the time of the murders. He got more examples of his violent behavior found out that his luggage had been shipped out of town to Boston, got a more complete description of Mary from her cousin, went to the dead house, got a sample of the dress fabric, went back to the witnesses who'd come in to speak to the justice, showed them the dress. They identified it as a match. He did even further research and found out that Morse would have had a chance to meet her because his engraving shop was just down the street from the Nassau boarding house and his home was on Green Street, which was close by too. And he was known to have been a patron of Andrew's Tobacco Emporium. And he'd spent time at sea as a young man and knew how to tie sailor's knots. Oh no, this is all fitting the crime. So he was careful because he didn't want to repeat the Kaikuk case. And he relayed this information to Justice Tyler and said he was just bummed that he couldn't go to Boston right then and bring him in because he just couldn't afford to pay for the trip himself. Yeah. Oh, God. Right. What? Back then, cops paid all their own expenses. Oh, wow. And so Justice Tyler looks at all his evidence, thinks on it for a second, pulls into his pocket, hands the man $80. What? He could hire an army. Right? And says, bring me Mary Rogers' killer and tucks the money into Hilliker's shirt pocket. Nice. Badass. Okay, so then Hilliker decides that he needs just just to be a little more sure of Morse's location before he goes out looking for him on Taylor's dime. So he goes back to the apprentice, book out, to see if he knew where his boss had gone. He told the young man that Morse was wanted for the murder of Mary Rogers, at which point the kid's face just goes white. And he's like, uh, yeah, I know where he is. Like, he'd been kind of covering for him because he thought it was, like, not that big a deal. Just beating his wife. But, yeah, right. I guess that's not murder. But then he's like, no, he, he may have killed someone. He's like, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I do know. And so he says he's in Worcester. And that he had sent him a letter telling him that the police were looking for him. And with that, the officer was off. He planned to intercept the letter. And he was going to catch Morse as well. But he didn't go by himself to catch the criminal. Who do you bring? One of the witnesses. Oh, so he could identify him? Right. And so he brings the witness along. And they reach town on August 14th. And he goes to the post office and he finds out that the letter's not yet arrived. So he knows that he hasn't been tipped off. And he traces Morse to this little boarding house in a town called Holden. And Hilliker waits outside the establishment until around 9.30 that night. And this man with mutton chops comes out. And he approached him in a very casual way. And asked if they could grab a drink and said he was new in town and, you know, didn't know anybody. That seemed legit at the time. The men entered and Hilliker bought a round of drinks. And then he made eye contact with a witness who had already been planted inside the tavern waiting on them. And the witness just nods yes. And after a few seconds, Hilliker said, Your name, sir, is Joseph Morse, I believe, and you are under arrest. On what charges? Beating your wife. Is that all? Yes. And for the murder of Mary Rogers. Ba-ba. 
So back to New York by steamer, Morse is taken to the tombs and picked out of a lineup of 12 men by the other witness. It's good police work. Right, because it's an independent verification. Twice. Right? And this was widely reported about, of course. And somewhat inevitably, a lynch mob formed outside the jail. Of course. At which point, Morse told Justice Tyler that he was prepared to tell the full truth of the way he had spent that Sunday. He had previously claimed that he went to Hoboken for a day of, quote, solitary reflection. Of course. Which was not exactly effective. So now he told this version of events. He said he met a young lady about noon, asked her to go to Staten Island. He distracted her until the last boat departed by, quote, devious expedient, and he convinced her to spend the night in a hotel with him and, quote, tried to have connection with her but did not succeed. Aww. They stayed through the night, and then they went back to New York City in the morning, and according to Morse, he, quote, left her in good friendship. Oh, I'm sure he did. Now, see, when he'd read the reports of Mary Rogers, he'd worried that the girl might have been her, that she might have killed herself after their dalliance fearing her reputation ruined. But he was convinced it couldn't be the same girl since his victim had been wearing black and Mary was said to have been wearing white. Another crime solved. <laughs> it seems really far-fetched and very convenient, and it doesn't make any sense. But not even Martha Morse, his wife, could be convinced to, be, to speak in his defense. But then, astonishingly, as Taylor was preparing to file murder charges, witnesses came forward to say that they had seen Morse of this girl in Stanton Island. The young woman was real, and her name was Mary Haviland, and she was from a respectable family in the city and just 16 years old, and reportedly a rather handsome girl. She gave a statement that matched Morse's in almost every detail, though her account was not so flattering. She had tried to hire a female chaperone, but none could be found, and she tried wedging a chair and a parasol under the doorknob, but he broke into her room as soon as she was in bed. She resisted him all night, finally getting him to back off when she threatened to shout murder. She spent the night in a chair wrapped in a sheet and told no one about what happened because she was afraid of what would happen to her reputation if word got out. Hotel employees confirmed all of the details. And this is the way the most promising suspect in the history of suspects was cleared for murder. <laughs> What do we say about nothing new under the sun? (laughs) Nothing new under the sun. So as coverage continues in the press, papers are definitely not dropping the case. And they begin to insist that Mary's alive and living in Pittsburgh. Of course. Do they see her there or something? Somebody report it? Meh. I'm sure. Meh. Like one person wrote it. They didn't have to. They really did just make things up. But then Daniel Payne and Alfred Cromlin, along with some of our other principals, do come back into the public eye briefly because Archibald Padley, you know, Alfred's BFF, was actually arrested. He was arrested and questioned, but he was held without charges in the tombs for a, a bit. And since they did not follow correct police procedure, it was all kept very hush hush. But what did remain out of the public eye was that John Anderson was brought in for questioning as well. Uh, the owner of the cigar shop. Yes. Now, that was kept very quiet because he had political aspirations. Mm. Alfred was working on his busybody persona. He had decided that he was the official spokesman for the family. And people were kind of speculating about him because he existed. He called for a public inquest to put all of this to rest. And he says, I fear no questions and wear no mask. It is odd how much he has just taken this up. 
I mean, he had to feel so guilty. She reached out to him two days before she disappeared. Oh, I guess so. I guess so. Even left a red rose. Oh, yeah. I mean, that would eat. And he like had a serious crush on her. It would, it would drive me crazy, too. Meanwhile, Daniel Payne was spiraling. He had moved out of town, and this excited the press. So then a break in the case. Oh, really? Yes. On August 25th, a woman who lived in Weehawken, New Jersey, named Frederica Loss, and her sons, Charles and Ossian, whose last name was Kellenbrock, were out working around their tavern, which was called Nick Moore's Tavern. Now, the boys had gone into a thicket to gather sassafras, as you do, and they had moved on to playing hide-and-seek when they saw what they thought was a shirt lying on a rock. Now, upon further examination, they discovered it was a woman's petticoat. Oh, no. And then they realized that there was a silk scarf spread over a boulder and strips of fabric from a white dress tangled on some branches, and there was a lady's parasol and handkerchief wedged between rocks. And they were partly rotted and badly stained, but Charles could make out the initials M.R. Mary Rogers. Embroidered on the handkerchief. So they brought the items to their mother, Mrs. Loss, who stowed them away for a full week before alerting authorities. The most innocuous explanation is that she was waiting to see the reward money increased. So she was smart? Maybe. (laughs) If it's not nefarious, she's smart. But whatever the thinking, she did go in to speak with Justice Merritt in early September, but she did not bring the items with her. So Merritt dispatched the ever-trusty Dr. Cook, who did our first autopsy, did such a bang-up job, to go to the tavern and see if the strips of fabric matched the dress. And he did say they did match them up. Merritt himself went into the thicket to examine the scene and to interview the witnesses. According to Mrs. Loss, on the 25th of July... A young woman had come into the tavern with a man who, of course, had a, quote, swarthy complexion. Was he a sailor? Probably. And they had some drinks. And then Mary took the arm of the man and they walked out toward the water. Now, meanwhile, Oscar, who is her oldest son, had gone out to drive out a bull who was loose near the tavern. So when Ms. Loss heard screaming outside, she was worried that the bull was goring her son and ran out. Now, finding him unharmed, she dismissed the noises. Oh, good. Not the bull. So Dr. Cook and Justice Merritt concluded that she was most likely killed in this thicket. So they have the scene of the crime. Mm-hmm. And they believe that she'd been held down and violated on some large flat rocks nearby. And they also discovered that some fence posts had been taken down and concluded that her body had been dragged to the shore using that path. Pretty smart. And this accounted for the torn pieces of fabric tangled in the branches. This was, of course, leapt upon by the press. Murder tourism. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And Nick Moore's Tavern became a very big site for the morbidly curious. Now, on October 7th, one of the curious arrived and asked 12-year-old Ossian for a bourbon and water, which he made for him because it's the 1840s. Now, this man wore a black suit and a black silk hat wound in mourning crepe. He asked the boy to direct him to the murder thicket, and Ossian asked him if he would like a guided tour, because this was his new little... Side Side hustle. Yeah. Side hustle. And the man said that he needed to go alone, but thank you. So just down the way from Weehawken in Hoboken, about 10 p.m., the same man stumbled into a tavern and asked for brandy and water. His black suit was askew, and he seemed agitated as he complained over the loss of his hat. He was obviously anxious, and he turned to a patron who was watching him and said, I suppose you know me. I'm the man who was promised Mary Rogers. I'm a man in a great deal of trouble. Oh, no. Then he drowned his drink and went back out into the night. 
following morning, a farmer named McShane discovered the man lying face down in wet grass and crying. And he asked the most logical question in the history of true crime writing. My dear man, are you a Frenchman? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm offended. <laughs> he says, no, no. Why? Why a Frenchman? I'm a Frenchman. What does that I mean? I don't know, but I love it. That we're a little eccentric? And then he goes, no, no, I'm not. And just walks off looking for his hat. Well, he was emotional. He was in the grass in the morning and weeping openly. Was he wearing a beret and a striped shirt? Eating a baguette, I guess. I don't know. But it's my favorite question ever. So he went off looking for his hat, which, by the by, was later found in the murder thicket, along with a broken vial of laudanum. The man, however, was discovered near Sybil's cave. He was discovered by two local doctors who found him lying on a bench on his stomach, but his head was overhanging the bench and pointed toward the ground. They approached him and rolled him over. And asked, are you a Frenchman? They did. They did. No, he said, we! But they loosened his collar and heard him moan softly. By the time they returned with help, however, he was dead. And in his pocket, there was a note. It said to the world, here I am on the spot. God forgive me my misfortune in my misspent time. Daniel Payne had killed himself at the scene of the crime. <gasps> it was Daniel Payne. It that was our toss pot. pot. Yeah. Oh my gosh! What a twist! The only unexpected finding noted in his autopsy was that his heart was quote somewhat wasted, which might account for his melancholy. Mrs. Loss came to the inquest and testified on behalf of her son, who was too young, that she did recognize Daniel Payne. And so everyone gasped and assumed that he had been there with Mary Rogers. She said that's not where she knew him from. She couldn't be sure where she knew him from, but he did look familiar, which is a big letdown. So after our toss pot, her fiancé dies, a new conspiracy theory gets started with a literal bang. How many conspiracy theories are there going to be? 75,000. On November 1st of 1842... Mrs. Federica Loss was shot in the knee. What? One of her sons had been cleaning a shotgun and dropped it, and it went off and shot her in the knee. Now, a physician does come and try to tend the wound, but it becomes septic, and it became clear that she's not going to survive. And that's when the family doctor, Dr. Gautier, was told by the boys that the great secret will come out. Upon hearing about Mrs. Loss's imminent demise, Justice Merritt hurries back up to Weehawken to see if the promise of an early death might jog her memory on any events surrounding the death of Mrs. Rogers, who's hoping for a deathbed confession. Did he find the great secret? Oh, wait. Now, see, the doctor, Dr. Gautier, had already tried to see if this was the case by walking up to her and shouting, Mary Rogers, into her ear while she was sleeping. And this did not produce the desired effect. Oh, it's too bad. And when Merritt arrived, Loss had slipped into complete delirium and she died on November 10th. He held an inquest and released a public statement referring to the testimony of a deponent that implicated the family in Mary's murder, stating that they were profligate and worthless characters and that they kept one of the, quote, most depraved and debauched houses in all of New Jersey and that all of them were accessory to and became participators in the murder of said Mary C. Rogers and the concealment of her body. It was Merritt's opinion that Loss had been involved with an illegal abortion ring. Oh, God. And he believed that Mary Rogers had died due to a botched abortion under Mrs. Loss's roof. Now, this theory was largely unsupported by evidence. But it's so great in the paper. <laughs> right, because this was already a thing they were talking about anyway. So at this moment, 
They were gripped with fear, loathing, etc. of one Madame Restelle. Who's this? Well, she had come to public attention and they were none too pleased about her existence. She described herself as a female physician and professor of midwifery in her ads. And in 1841, she'd been tried for, quote, administering certain noxious medicine that caused miscarriages. She was an abortionist. Her real name was Anna Trowell Lohman, and she'd come to New York City from England in 1831. Now, it's estimated that she earned a million dollars performing these procedures. She lived in a Fifth Avenue brownstone that the locals called, and I shit you not, the mansion built on baby skulls. I believe they did. So the theory was that she had satellite apartments all around New York and New Jersey, and that her students would carry out her work. You know, given her cut. Yeah, she get a little bit of that. Merritt believed that Loss might have been such a woman. And around this time, an article ran that, if true, confirmed his theory. Now, according to the Tribune, Loss had summoned Merritt and confessed that Mary had come to the tavern with a young physician and that he had tried to perform an abortion. But she died there, and the Loss family had helped dispose of the body. The two eldest sons, Oscar and Charles, were arrested and were subjected to a very lengthy inquest. Which proved fruitless. So what was the great secret? Well, to give you a full idea of how anticlimactic this trial was, they said that it was their mother's private rheumatism remedy. Uh Uh-huh. Right. The public was not pleased about this, but they were pleased about this resolution. This was a really believable, sink-your-teeth-into-it kind of resolution to Mary's story. Now, Estelle lurked in popular consciousness for years after this, and she was vilified over and over again in the press. She was blamed for various crimes or missing persons over the years. Now, eventually, a new abortion law was passed, which directly sought to bring her down. In public comment about the new law, the Police Gazette reminded the public that she had had a hand in the death of Mary Rogers. Oh, that's not going to bode well for her. Mm-mm. This was far from established fact. However, on February 23rd, 1846, two days after this article was published, a lynch mob formed on Fifth Avenue with the aim of bringing down Madame Restell. The morning news reported, curses loud and deep upon Restell and her co-adjudicators were rife amid the crowd and that no ordinary troublemakers or hooligans were present, but respectable citizens who called out, hanging is too good for the monster, or haul her out, or who murdered Mary Rogers? Where's the thousand murdered children in this house? Just then, the chief of police, George Mastell, arrived with his officers and broke up the riot. Now, she was arrested from time to time. The consequences never seemed long-lasting. On one occasion, she paid her $10,000 bail in cash. What? Along with an additional thousand as evidence of her goodwill and return to her mansion. Now, eventually, public interest in her revived and renewed criticism peaked in 1878 after the mysterious death of her husband. She was arrested after a confrontation with Anthony Comstock of the Comstock laws. Yeah. And spent a brief stint in the tombs before posting bail and cash again. And this time, she returned home to take a bath, and while in her tub, slit her own throat and died. The press threatened repeatedly to publish her client list found among her effects. Oh, I'm sure they got paid not to do that. Right. She had some very influential and wealthy clients. I'm sure. So this alleged document seems to have disappeared from history, but in theory... Mary Rogers' name would be in it, and that's how we could solve this whole thing forever. So, to Mr. Edgar Allan Poe, nay, Dupin, solve the case. Well, he thought he would. Of course he did. So, in June of 1842, he writes to Joseph Evans Snodgrass. 
You have to make that noise when you say snodgrass. He's going to come up again. I have a proposition to make. You may remember a tale of mine published about a year ago, Murders in the Room Morgue. Its theme was an exercise of ingenuity in detecting murder. I'm just now putting the concluding touch to a similar article, which I shall entitle The Mystery of Marie Roget, a sequel to the Rue Morgue. The story is based upon that real murder of Mary Cecilia Rogers, which has created so vast an excitement some months ago in New York. So like his last C. Auguste Dupin story, which was very well received, but Poe personally felt that it was flawed. So he like thought it was too contrived? Yes. And so he wanted to take full advantage of this challenge of Marie Roget, a real-life unsolved murder. It would focus on ratiocination or deductive reasoning. He told Snodgrass, I have handled my design in a manner altogether novel in literature. I have imagined a series of nearly exact coincidences occurring in Paris. A young Grisette, one named Marie Roger, has been murdered under precisely similar circumstances with Mary Rogers, and thus, under pretense of showing how Dupin unraveled the mystery of Marie's assassination, I, in reality, enter into a very long and rigorous analysis of the New York tragedy. No point is omitted. I examine each by each the opinions and arguments of the press upon the subject, show that the subject has been hitherto unapproached. In fact, I believe not only that I have demonstrated the fallacy of the general idea that the girl was a victim of gang of ruffians, but I have indicated the assassin in a manner which will give renewed impetus to investigation. So he solved it. He thinks he will solve it and the police will go, go arrest the murderer. Now Snodgrass is like, cool, whatever. Nah. So he ends up pitching the article to William Snowden. Wait, he releases the information to Snowden? Yes. Yes, he does. Just making sure. Nothing new under the sun. Who is the editor for The Ladies' Companion. The first installment of the story appeared in November 1842, alongside stories like The Bible, its description of the character and attributes of God, and The Old Oak Chest. Perfect. A little bit out of place. Yeah, but that's always what happened. Like, I think it was... Oh God, I think it was the Rue Morgue that was published in, like, a Christmas annual. <laughs> and Poe had no filter. So it's every bit of what you think it is. So one might say grotesque and, and arabesque. Mm-hmm. So Dupin worked through the facts and theories of the case, and he set aside six key news articles, which he insisted pointed to the solution. The six clippings were, one, that mentioned the first disappearance. The second focuses on that episode but offers a few more clues. The text of that fabricated article read, It is well known that during the absence, she was in the company of a young naval officer, much noted for his debauchery. A quarrel, as it is supposed, providentially led her to return. The third focuses on a gang of rowdies abducting a girl who was later found. Familiar. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth one concerns the Joseph Morse saga. And then we have two communications object of which is to fasten the crime on the late atrocity upon Morse or Menaeus, but not as this gentleman has been fully exonerated by legal inquiry, as the arguments of several correspondents appear to be more zealous than profound, we do not think it advisable to make them public. So the next focus is on the letters that poured in, insisting that she had been the victim of the gang, and the final one, which is key, simply noted that an empty boat was found floating down the river, and its sails were lying on the bottom, and a bargeman towed it under the the barge office the next morning, but it was stolen without the knowledge of any officer. Oh, no. So Poe outlines the importance of the clippings this way. Dupin explained that disappearing twice was an incredible outlier. 
and so it stood to reason that whoever had been involved with her first disappearance was surely involved with her murder. Poe focuses on the naval officer and links him to the gallant gay Lothario in the real reports as the most likely person to have influenced her decision to disappear. Now, he looks at the gang of ruffians thing and says that since a woman has been located, the idea that two separate women had been abducted by two separate gangs and two separate boats was simply preposterous. Like, that that just made that entire theory silly. Couldn't happen. And the clipping about Morse, or Menaeus in his narrative, is included to show that even after this man was proven innocent, members of the public insisted that he was guilty. Now, Poe uses the fifth clipping to illustrate the interest in gangs which he claims distracted from the investigation of people that Marie knew personally, which was a critical error. Now, the boat. The, the boat. The boat is the biggest clue and the most conveniently invented. So even though he was trying to use a real case to avoid any contrivances, he, cre- yeah. he created a contrivance. Yeah, he did. He did. So he uses these clues to construct the following scenario. He says Marie eloped with a naval officer at the time of her disappearance. And this is backed up by a fleeting report in the Herald, printed at the time of her murder, which claimed that Mary Rogers was missing from Anderson's store three years ago for two weeks. It asserted that she was seduced by an officer of the U.S. Navy and kept in Hoboken for that two-week period. His name is well known aboard his ship, it says. Now, he goes on to say that the time between her two disappearances was about the same amount of time that a naval deployment typically lasts. He conjectures that he was deployed and that interrupted their plans. Then he reveals his belief that she reconnected with him and went back to her eloping plans when he returned from sea, because it is more likely that she eloped with the same man twice than chose to elope with two different men two different times. He then makes a point that if the pair of them had been attacked by a gang, his body would have been found, or he would have gone to the authorities to report what happened. Since neither of those things happened, he must have been the one to attack her. If he was with her, he says that this man is further implicated by the sailor's knot, which is mentioned by Dr. Cook and in his narrative, and the hitch that is used to drag her body. He also points out that a gang could have just carried her, which is true. Good point. Then he claims that the assailant wrote to the press to encourage suspicion in other directions and to throw off the investigation. But the boat, the boat, where he drags her body and goes out to sea to dump it. That's key. Because when he realizes that he leaves this clue for the authorities, he goes to the barge office and retrieves it and is able to do so because of his status as a naval officer. Find out whose boat that is, and you find your murderer. Ta-da! He solved it! Neat, tidy. However, there was a problem. What's that? Well, this was released in three installments. Yes. And by the time the second installment was printed, the abortion theory had taken hold. Just threw his plans out the window. Oh, my God. And it would like seem like this guy was a kook. The Stupin character is just a kook if he goes through all this and doesn't even come up with that. And so he has to do something. So what's he did? Was he rewrite it? He gets the third installment and rewrites no. it. He does. After laying all this groundwork with the six articles, that's already all out there. No. But he has to make a solution that acknowledges this new theory. So he just goes about creating what one might call reasonable doubt. He alters a few words in his final draft that made it seem this nefarious naval officer had maybe taken Marie to an abortionist. Uh. Or at least allowed his readers to infer that, careful not to contradict the new theory that was so widely held as true in the press. And he didn't exactly run the story as front page news within the world of Marie Rogette. But he ties up this entire story with an editor's note. That's oh, like, really? 
Yeah, it's like, uh, due to the sensitive nature of this ongoing case, we can't print defense solution because reasons. Are you serious? Yes. No, what a letdown. I know. Now, the story would be smoothed out in later collections of his work. By Poe, while he was alive. Oh, like he edited all his yeah, work constantly. All the time. Um, but he never really mastered that perfect conclusion that he had desired to offer. Now, despite its flaws, it was reprinted again and again because of the strength of Rue Morgue and the other Dupin mystery. The Purloined Letter. Which are both great. And so people would want to put all the Dupin stories in their collection. And this one got published over and over again. So... We began at the end, as any great Poe or Dickens <laughs> work. To begin with, he was dead. He was dead. Let's go back there. <laughs> right. Now, we've seen the way that Poe likes to blur fantasy and reality, fact and fiction, kind of made it his life's work. Little did he know. It would continue on. So on October 3rd of 1849, Joseph Walker of the Baltimore Sun stumbled upon this disheveled, delirious man outside or possibly inside the pub Gunner's Hall, which was also a polling station. He recognized this disheveled man as Edgar Allan Poe. Now, Walker asked if he wanted him to contact any acquaintances, and he mentioned the magazine editor, Joseph E. Snodgrass. You have to make that noise. So he sent a letter via messenger. Dear sir, there's a gentleman rather the worse for wear at Ryan's Fourth Ward polls who goes under the cognomen of Edgar A. Poe, and who appears in great distress. And he says he is acquainted with you. He is in need of immediate assistance. Yours in haste. Joseph W. Walker to Dr. J. E. Snodgrass. Now, Poe had been traveling to Philadelphia for an editing job from his home in Richmond. He was also collecting subscriptions for his new magazine, The Stylus. Now, the night before he left Richmond on his trip to Philadelphia... His fiancée, Elmira Shelton, commented that he appeared ill. So Poe visited a doctor, his friend, named John Carter, who advised Poe to stay in Richmond a few more days before making the journey. Now, one of the odd things that happens at this time is that when Poe leaves Carter's house, he accidentally takes Carter's cane, leaving his own. Now, this cane was no ordinary cane. It was a sword cane. How cool is that? Ninja Poe. Exactly. Like, where is the show? <laughs> we need to write it. They tried to make the Houdini Doyle Doyle show that we demanded, it, and it it, it got didn't cancel. Yeah, that's what my mom would say when he, when a cute kid grew up to be ugly. It just didn't make. It didn't make. So after failing to convince one of Poe's relatives to care for the poet, Snodgrass sent him to Washington College Hospital. Seems like a good idea. Now, Snodgrass was a staunch temperance advocate. Mm. Now, we've talked some about Poe's vices. He had vices, but he had, he had kind of put them to rest after his wife's death, which seems wrong, but I think waiting for the end was actually worse for him. So Snodgrass wrote and lectured about Poe's oncoming death, As a cautionary tale about the evils of alcohol. Convenient. In an 1856 account that was published in the woman's temperance paper, The Facts of Poe's Death and Burial, he says, Dear Madame, in the last number of your woman's temperance paper, I find the following statement. 
The remains of Edgar Allan Poe, the author of The Raven, lie moldering in a corner of the potter's field at Baltimore. Alas, poor Poe, a prohibitory liquor law might have saved thee. I wish I could roll my eyes a little harder so they'd make a sound effect. The truth of the matter is bad enough, and I think it due to the reputation of Baltimore that it should be stated, the fact of poor Poe's last hour's death and burial. But perhaps... I would not so readily have recognized him had I not been notified of his apparel. His hat, or rather the hat of somebody else, for he had evidently been robbed of his clothing or cheated in an exchange, was a cheap palm leaf one without a band and soiled. His coat of commonest alpaca, and and evidently second-hand, and his pants of gray-mixed cashmere, dingy and badly fitting. He wore neither vest nor neckcloth, if I remember right. While his shirt was sadly crumpled and soiled, he was so utterly stupefied with liquor that I thought it best not to seek recognition of conversation, especially as he was surrounded by a crowd of drinking men actuated by idle curiosity rather than sympathy. So insensible was he that he was to carry him to the carriage as if a corpse. The muscles of articulation seemed paralyzed to speechlessness, and mere co- incoherent mutterings were all that could be heard. Dude, that sounds like way more than liquor. I agree. He died in the hospital after some three or four days, during which time he enjoyed only occasional and fitful seasons of consciousness. You don't stay drunk for three or four days. His disease, as will have been anticipated, was mania aputo. So they're saying that he has, like, delirium tremens. So that's, you know, withdrawal from alcohol, and it can kill you. And it can last several days. But it doesn't come on immediately after a bout of drinking. Exactly. In one of his more lucid moments, when asked by the physician whether he would like to see his friends, he exclaimed, Friend, my best friend would be he who would take a pistol and blow out my brains, and thus relieve me of my agony. I believe Poe said that. Poe was always talking about, like, being put out of his misery. Like, whenever he was in a down moment, he would, like, make very passive-aggressive, veiled threat things like well like i was saying earlier it's so funny because people writing about him like are almost trying to copy his writing style Mm -hmm. like poe was kind of buried in almost a pauper's grave in a way and he says even now as i write this hurried letter i seem to hear the clods rattle on that unprotected coffin and contemptuous derision of the transcendent genius of its occupant black so that is our like one of the first big accounts that comes out of Poe's death. You know, right. we hear that he is this drunk, licentious character that went on a bender, yeah, couldn't handle a, his liquor, exactly, and wound up in Paying someone the wages else's of clothes, sin. exactly. And if they'd only had a temperance movement that was successful, he would still be alive today. So. I want to point out a few things in that account. First of all, it sounds like way more than drunk. Also, you don't go into DTs after you have liquor. And then the idea that people were so amused by his behavior, they were just all kind of standing around watching him does seem odd because people in a tavern would have seen a drunk person before. Like he had to be acting crazier than normal. Well, like some drunk. accounts say that he was kind of like just passed out in a ditch. The gutter. I've always heard of that. And a that's ditch. pretty much, there's no, no contemporaneous reports of it. Most likely he was found in the pub. And you said, well, why would he be drinking so much? Well, it was election day. Clearly, everybody gets knocked around election day. I will next year. <laughs> they should, but they <laughs> sure did then. For example, 
1758, a young candidate in Virginia for the House of Burgesses footed a huge liquor bill to woo voters on election day. His entire campaign budget was 50 pounds, and he spent it on 160 gallons of liquor and served it to 391 voters. This man would later become the first president of the United States. That's right. George Washington. How did we ever pass prohibition? (laughs) It's just wrong. Stories like this about Poe. Not stories like that about George Washington, which is a very America fuck yeah moment. Now, Poe's attending physician in Baltimore, John Moran, which is who Snodgrass took him to, wrote a many articles and later published a book, Edgar Allan Poe, A Defense. Cool. That was set out to refute these rumors and to provide his own firsthand account of Poe's final days. Now, these articles and the book are all over the place, and none of them line up. So they're pretty much completely debunked. And this is not an actual firsthand account. And they become more and more colored, flowery. With things, (laughs) As his legend grows, so do the stories. Oh, yeah. And And so many people are contributing to it. Such as in his later writing, he said that Poe's last words were, He who arched the heavens and upholds the universe has his decrees legibly written upon the frontlet of every human being and upon demons incarnate. But right after the death, he gave Poe's last words in a letter to Maria Clem, Lord, help my poor soul. I find that very believable. The Lord, help my poor soul. Yeah. Yeah, but you can see just how much he's changed it. Right. Just in that one line. So perhaps the strongest evidence for an alcohol-related death is J.P. Kennedy's diary, his personal diary, and his entry on October 10th of 1849 said, On Tuesday last, Edgar A. Poe died in town here at the hospital from the effects of a debauch. He fell in with some companions here who seduced him to the bottle, which it was said he had renounced some time ago. The consequence was fever, delirium, and madness, and in a few days a termination of his sad career in the hospital. Poor Poe, a bright but unsteady light, has been awfully quenched. So Kennedy bought it. That's the guy who got him the job. Yeah, and it's in his this... personal diary. Yeah, it's not for an audience. Published. Exactly. And there are other writings and letters from the time that kind of hold up a similar sentiment. Well, Poe had been a hell of a drinker. Like, to give that some credence, right? That he had been a hell right. of a drinker. Like, think about what Baudelaire said. Like, a savage drink, like a savage with a unique American approach to it. And so John Reuben Thompson wrote in a letter on November 9th of 1849, no confidence could be placed in him in any relation of life, least of all an antagonism to his fatal weakness. He died indeed in delirium from drunkenness. The shadow of infamy beclouded his last moments. Now, of course, Thompson's statement was made without any firsthand knowledge. But at some point, Thompson changed his opinion. In about 1860... Wow. Thompson began to lecture about Poe's life, and at some point began to attribute his death to the cooping theory. So cooping, cooping, this is the one case of cooping that's kind of gone down in history. So cooping is whenever gangs... Soap locks. ...associated with political parties... (laughs) ...were known to kidnap innocent bystanders, hold them in a room called a coop, 
Ah, there it is. And then they were forced to go in and out of poll after poll, voting over and over again. They might change their clothes. Ah, I see where he got this idea. Mm -hmm. And to ensure compliance, the victims were given lots of liquor. And probably drugs, too. Very possible. And beaten. Oh, we're serious. But it's interesting that this cooping theory, which is so attributed to supposed death, is not reported anywhere until Thompson's lectures in the 1870s. Ugh. So it was, is this like a case of like three to five million people voted illegally or is this like legit? That's a good question because there are definitely reports in the papers that sound like, oh, voter fraud, voter fraud, such as in The Republican and Argus, published in 1849, beware of the Whig tricks. Our opponents are at their old game again. Tickets are out with their candidate and their hickory emblem. Colonization on a large scale is to be resorted to. Illegal votes will be polled from a distance and otherwise. Coops have been started by them. All this and more the Whigs are doing. See Democrats that they do not succeed. Let us all be on the alert. One of the flaws in this theory is that Poe was obviously very well known. And recognizable. And a lot of times, the people that they would coop, because they would, and you can read many reports of people that had been cooped at the time, (laughs) were new immigrants. Ah. And they were seen as a threat to the real Americans. (sighs) That's a quote from the Times. (laughs) And so they would take the new Irish immigrants and do this to them. Right. People from shithole countries. Exactly. With their potatoes potatoes just just want some potatoes no not vodka <laughs> potatoes and one person th spencer accused of cooping for the democratic party of the time said before i was a resident of baltimore i was familiar with cooping i was educated in the democratic school and taught to coop before i was a voter <laughs> and did find many articles about reports of cooping from first-hand accounts in the new york times and baltimore papers and there was even a letter published in 1879 after the lectures from an anonymous source mm. mm-hmm. that says that he even saw Poe in the coop when he was cooped himself. Holy Toledo. It's been pretty much dismissed as just journalistic sensationalism. Never. I'm affronted. So I think that we can readily agree that the alcohol there, there was just alcohol. That's ridiculous. There may have been some involvement in there, but that was not the only source of all these problems. I I agree with that. I think he may have gotten drunk, couldn't handle his liquor, and it may have aggravated some ongoing condition, or it may have just been like, that's where he had his breakdown. And the cooping theory is interesting, and Owen makes the story interesting. Poe would like it. I think he would. Of course, someone would be like, buried alive or something. <laughs> They would have to coop the candidate for him to really like it. Uh, on accident. Yeah. That'd be good. But the date of when it first appears. Just undermines it so much. It but hurts. you can see him working from the existing evidence. I put exactly. scare quotes. Yeah. Like this un, kind of unreliable accounts we get in the temperance paper and things like where his clothes were not his own. Mm-hmm. Really? Pose in shabby clothes. We're calling that weird. We're calling that weird? Are you sure? Right, because he was, of course, he had shabby clothes. One of the pieces of evidence that goes against the cooping theory, also, besides just his the date and how recognizable he was, is that he had that cane. 
and the cane was not stolen and was later returned to the good doctor. So they found the cane in his personal effects at the hospital. And you believe that would have been taken had he been cooped. I mean, all of his clothes were taken. And this was not just an ordinary cane. It was a very nice cane. Yeah, that does kind of cut that narrative to smithereens. As if he pulled the sword from the sword cane and cut it himself. And then, well, there's also that could he have defended himself. Yeah, that's a fun angle. Which... The idea of Poe going down fighting with a sword cane. Great scene. He was an athlete. (laughs) True. But he was a little worse for wear as per our letter. Now, there have been some interesting theories put forward recently, such as maybe like heavy metal poisoning. And they actually sampled some of his hair and couldn't find any trace evidence of that. One report claimed that he might have had rabies. I've seen that one. And so I, I read about that in my rabies book when we were doing the werewolf. werewolf episode. And so I read more into it. And the evidence they use, the case report they use mm-hmm. to determine that he had rabies is from Moran's account. The guy that just like kind of makes it up as he uh. goes. So less than reliable. Very very less reliable. I personally think that he had some sort of brain infection, like an encephalitis of some sort. Or, you know, it could have been that the TB spread to his brain, which is something that happens. So there are actually a lot of interesting accounts that play into that. For example, there were notices posted in the newspaper before the time of Virginia's death, his wife, stating that both Edgar Allan Poe and his wife, Virginia Clem Poe, had TB. Yes, and if one had TB for several years, it could definitely spread to the brain. And then as to further support that, one of his acquaintances at the time, who had known both he and Virginia and was a nurse... Stated that she believed that he had a brain lesion or a brain infection. Right. So that's Miss Shu. And in March of 1847, Dr. Valentine Mott, a famous New York doctor in his day, agreed with Miss Shu, that nurse, that he may have had a brain lesion and suffered from brain fever, noting that a modern medical man who saw a photograph of Poe told my friend that a twist in the poet's face suggested to him a brain lesion. Now, Poe had also written to Maria Clem about him being so ill that he could hardly hold a pen and was unable to write. In later writing, you'll see it once by the handwriting of this letter that I'm better, much better in health and spirits. So something was affecting his handwriting. Like his motor skills. Yes, exactly. And then the way that he is described, and I understand that Snodgrass's account of his death is colored by this idea that he's drunk out of all reason. Right. right? Exactly. But, you know, in describing the other men standing around him in the pub and talking about how he had to be moved out and like, didn't regain motor function exactly, and, and things like that. It seems like, as I said, more than drunk. And it, in and out of lucidity is a very common thing for people with, um, you know, like a brain lesion of some sort like that. Well, and I will mention that, Poe, during his heavy drinking period before this, was known to get into altercations because, you know, that whole opinionated thing. Yeah. And there was one time where he was with some friends and they'd been drinking and the man was beating his head, I believe, against the floor 
repeatedly. They were coming to break it up and Poe said, no, no, I've got him right where I want him, which touche, (laughs) touche. But still, there is evidence of brain trauma, at least before this. Yeah. And, you know, the nurse also noted that he did have a scar on his head which could have been a result of some sort of traumatic brain injury. Like having your head beaten against the floor repeatedly. Could be. Could be. So this could be, like, if we go back and look at that account, that could be the Houdini punched in the stomach moment. Could be. So I, mean, I think it's much more likely that he had some sort of brain lesion, whether he had an encephalitis or a meningitis, or he had some long-standing chronic illness, such as a you know, tuberculosis in the brain, tuberculosis meningitis, that caused this kind of stupor yeah stupor which would have been progressively worsening worsening getting better fluctuating such as with his handwriting that's been noted and his behavior which has been noted and ultimately would result in him becoming stuporous for a few days and then dying and i do think that that's important to point out the fluctuation because even in griswold's account which we can take with many grains of salt lots of salt on my margarita But, you know, Griswold notes that he's inconsistent or Kennedy notes that he's erratic. And it does seem like a thing that like just comes and goes. Even Poe writes about it. I don't feel in control of myself. And so it seems like it might have been some long-standing illness. But so even though he's still inspiring stories after his death, he continues to do so. Now, just as Snodgrass mentioned, Poe was hastily buried the day after he died. An observer recalled the ceremony as being both cold-blooded and unchristian-like. Ooh, damn. He was buried in an unmarked grave in his grandfather's plot in Westminster Burying Grounds in Baltimore. Eleven years later, his cousin paid for a monument, but the stone was destroyed by a train that crashed into the stone carver's shop. You can't make this shit up. 26 years after Poe's death, teachers and students raised the money for a proper monument, which was placed in a place of honor next to the cemetery gates. Now, while Poe's body was being moved to the new location, they dropped it. Of course they did. His coffin broke. Of course it did. His remains fell out. Of course they did. And pieces of the coffin are now collector's items. Of course they are. (laughs) Now, there is a memorial stone placed at the original burial site, which is still part of legend today. So beginning in 1949 until 2009, a person would enter the cemetery, the Westminster Burying Ground, where Poe is buried, and leave three red roses and a half-empty bottle of cognac on his grave. The toast was made on Poe's birthday, usually between midnight and 6 a.m., and no one ever really tried to unmask the toaster. But a small group of people would gather to watch the annual ritual. And the person wore all black with a white scarf and a large, wide-brimmed hat. And he was said to carry the same style of cane that Poe had had with him when he died. I want to know if it's a sword cane. <laughs> I want to know if it's the sword cane. It's not. That's in a collection. So who says the collector doesn't take oh, it out once right. a year? So apparently they were photographed in 1990 and the photo was published in Life magazine. That's the only known photograph of the true Poe toaster. But one of the regulars at this yearly ritual was the director of Baltimore's Poe House, Jeff Jerome. And he began attending the ceremonies in 1976. Now, no one is sure what the connection to cognac is, but the three roses are thought to stand for the three people who are buried in the plot. Muddy, Maria Clem, 
Virginia, and Edgar. Now, the tradition eventually caught the attention of the public, and Jerome organized a stakeout to put the rumor that he was the toaster to rest. He had four others hide with him and wait for the toaster inside the nearby catacombs. Now, one journalist for the Washington Post wrote in 1983, On January 19th, the anniversary of Poe's birth, cognac and roses have appeared under mysterious circumstances in the small walled-in Westminster Cemetery in Baltimore, where the body of the celebrated writer is buried. The mysterious appearance of cognac and roses has certain hold on Baltimore, in part because Poe ranks with H.L. Mencken as the city's top literary icon, and partly because the tribute is paid in a graveyard in the middle of the night with symbols of wealth and elegance. Now, Jerome would say to Washington Post, We would never attempt to photograph him or stop him. We had no thought of confronting him. People have called me up and said that they don't want to know who he is, that it's a nice mystery, and that there aren't a lot of mysteries left. Now, Jerome began keeping all of the notes which were left annually by the toaster, and he verified the identity of the real toaster each year because the man would send him a secret signal to show that he was the true Pope toaster. He knew who it was. Mm -hmm. But in 1999, the note indicated that the torch had been passed. The note stated that the father had died and the sons would continue the tradition. Now, according to Jerome, the sons did not take the ritual as seriously as the original. And that... This makes me so angry. (laughs) They would sometimes wear street clothes to make the toast. Now, in 2001, they left the following note regarding the upcoming Super Bowl between the Baltimore Ravens and the New York Giants. The New York Giants, darkness and decay, and the big blue hold dominion over all. Baltimore Ravens. Thousand injuries they will suffer. Edgar Allan Poe evermore. So angry. I know. After they stopped appearing in 2009, the museum was plagued by an onslaught of copycats that they dubbed the Faux Toasters because they're clever. But in 2016, Jerome held auditions for a sanctioned replacement and there was an open casting call for Baltimore's next Poe Toaster. Now... The votes were tallied. They were voted on by the audience. There was an open bar. With a, like you had to buy your admission, but then you had an open bar. I would buy it. <laughs> I know. And they kept the results secret to kind of keep the identity of the toaster a somewhat secret. But they're really not anonymous anymore. And they're sponsored by the city. And it's a big party where everyone goes out. Last year, there was another Poe toaster. And he went out. And he toasted, and he left the cognac, and he left the roses. He even took out a violin and played dance macabre, and left the violin propped on the monument. And so with this official acceptance, this official inviting in of Poe's legacy into the formal structure and systems and establishment of the city, you have to wonder what he would have thought about all that. Well, it's so funny because ever since I've heard of the Poe Toaster when I was a kid, because of course I knew about him when I was a kid, I was always fascinated. I was fascinated because I'd been reading this giant tome of Edgar Allan Poe on onion skin, you know, that my dad had given me and just been absorbed in this flowery, ridiculous language and these, you know, brutal, interesting, singular effect stories. And they were so captivating. 
And I felt like the Poe toaster really captivated that singular effect that Poe was always working towards. And it was a true mystery. And it was an unnamed narrator to the story. And you were just there to watch this macabre communion arabesque tale occur. And it truly was you know, the perfect personification and tribute to Poe that ever could be in modern times. Well, there's something about the reverence of it that I think was genuinely missing from Poe's life. I believe that his entire existence was about finding honor and respect and consistency. Despite feeling lost and adrift and put upon by the world, he always wanted recognition and to be respected. And I, I genuinely view that kind of private ritual as a sign of respect and admiration. And every time we sit, maybe in the candlelight or by a fire, and read one of Poe's stories, that's exactly what we're doing. Respect through reliving, recounting, and reading, and maybe believing that what we're interacting with is a little bit more than just a story. And that's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.